0: An unmatched dual threat.
1: Try to get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner. Gets up center. Perry! Stoodle! Corey Perry! Oh, able to take away from Solani. It's giving away to Solani! All right, we're back finally. Two months down the road almost, which I guess isn't a surprise. Uh, no, Not much Ducks news coming in with them being one of the seven teams not in the playoffs, but we're back with some news to kind of catch up on everything that's going and uh, – As you'll find out shortly, it is just me, no Pat, no Jason today. They're both uh, off doing uh, a couple other things, and hopefully they'll be back soon. But I do have Steven, my fellow Hockey writers, Ducks contributor, joining the show. Thanks for coming on and saving the day here, Steven. (laughs) Happy
0: to, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to call your number and you just got to play your role.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, we've had some great hockey to watch, even with the Ducks not playing. Uh, It is a a bit of a shot right to the heart that Corey Perry, Andrew Cogliano and Shea Theodore and Patrick Maroon are all in the conference finals this year, which is uh, the the one that hurts me the most is Corey Perry. The fact that he ended up leaving the Ducks and and ends up having a better shot at the Stanley Cup and we're still paying him some money. So (laughs) that one, that one kind of stings a little bit. I think I saw him on the ice with
0: Tyler Sagan the other time and I was like, Oh, that's, That's not a good sign for the Ducks fans. Like, he's out there playing with a playmaking center.
1: Cool. (laughs) Like, I know he hasn't done much, but I just feel like if the Stars make it all the way, just as a shot at Ducks fans, like, he's going to score a big goal. Like, he's going to score, like... Game seven Stanley Cup winning overtime goal or something. Like he hasn't really done a ton. Like I know he's contributed a bit. I don't think, you know, the stars don't rely on him to be like a Jamie Benn or a Tyler Sagan. But I feel like like Corey Perry still has those moments in him. I feel like that's gonna come. And it's gonna be assisted from like Cogliano or something.
0: Right. Yeah, that's the thing. He's he's really just a guy who's kind of been there before. And as much as like, you know, we try to avoid that kind of stuff talking about it, like it does matter that like you know, he's not gonna be one of those guys that's squeezing his stick a little tight if the game gets close or something like that he's kind of built up in his head you know the equity to be able to go out and perform
1: yeah he, he's one of the guys that's got it done in big moments and we were talking before the show i mean cory perry being a part of olympic teams winning memorial cups with the knights part of, of obviously the duck stanley cup win in 07 and and all their long playoff runs since then uh we'll see if he ends up taking the stars to the promised land down the road. But we do have some Ducks news to get into. Some of this, like I said, is pretty old. But we'll start with a couple signings. The Ducks did lock up Sonny Milano and Jacob Larson, both the two-year deals. Uh, Starting with Milano, it was two years at 1.7 average annual value, which is actually more than what Troy Terry ended up getting. And Milano only played nine games for the Ducks, put up two goals, three assists, five points, played with Getzlaff, looked pretty good. I, I mean, it's not a lot of money. I'm just a bit surprised that, you know, based off the small sample size, they ended up giving him a bit more than a guy who's kind of been around.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I think I was
1: definitely surprised. I
0: expected him to come in, I don't know, between like 1 and one three, But I think the 1.7 on a two-year deal kind of makes sense when you give him the fact that he's a little bit older. He's got a little bit more of a track record. Um, you know, he's been inconsistent. But it's also hard to think that a smaller skill guy like that is really going to get – a fair shake with John Tortorella and he came in and he looked good. You know, he was, he was kind of the guy that everybody hoped Sprong would be when he showed up. You know, he just looked really active. He skated well. He, I don't know. He just seems to fit in better. And I think because he knows that this is one of those times where he's going to kind of have a last shot at it. He knows he's got to play well. And it's a tradable deal if it falls apart or something like that. Yeah,
1: he he just kind of seems like one of those players. Like, even if it doesn't work out in Anaheim, he'll still always kind of find a job. He he like he works hard, like you yeah. said. Like when he came into to, to Anaheim, like you look at his two full seasons with Columbus, like those aren't bad point totals either twenty two points and fourteen goals back in twenty seven eighteen and fifty five games, and then obviously before he came to Anaheim, he had eighteen points and forty six games with Columbus. Like that for if you you know you are looking for a guy who can contribute in the middle six, that's not too bad and. You know, when you take into account former uh, first round pick, he's only 24 years of age. He's got time to turn it around and, and maybe fulfill a bit of that potential that Columbus thought they had when they drafted him. Like it's a, it's a no brainer to bring him back and at least get him give him a shot. And you know, the Ducks are gonna have a ton of players fighting for that spot this year. So even if he ends up being one of the guys who doesn't make it, it's not like you're bearing you know five million dollars in in the AHL and still having to pay this guy.
0: Right. And I think, you know, as much as we kind of have been conditioned as Ducks fans to kind of get pissed about how slow and gritty all the players are, like, he definitely fits that idea of a a skill based top nine. You know, he's the kind of guy that you could see a coach moving up and down the lineup looking for to get juice in a game. He's, you know, You you saw it in those, I think it was like nine games. You saw that he has the ability. It's going to be about finding a rhythm, finding a partner. Like it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, he ended up settling into a line with kind of like a Sam Steele and just kind of providing a little bit of spark. You know, I think we can hope that Steele turns into a bit of a two-way player. And if Milano is able to play on his wing and give him a little juice and creativity, I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Like I, I, I think the chemistry he had with Getzlaff... I mean, most players you put with Getzlaff are going to have some sort of chemistry. We've seen Getzlaff pretty m- much work with, with anybody. He's been placed with a lot of guys, and in, in similar to what pe- the uh, Penguins do... With Sidney Crosby, when you get guys like Brian Rust and Jake Gensel earlier in his career and Connor Sheary, who kind of get thrown on his line, Gensel has kind of been that guy for the Ducks since Corey Perry moved on or really since his career tailed off. So Milano could line up there. Obviously, Danton Heinen has a spot. He's got to find Silverberg, Raquel, Jones, Terry. You know, the list goes on where... The Ducks are going to have to find spots for these guys, but it's hard to overlook the fact that he played well with Ryan Getzlaff for that small sample size near the end of the season. You know, barring a a poor training camp or or poor preseason for him, you'd you'd have to expect that that's where at least he starts the season to see if there is something there and that they can kind of rekindle that magic heading into the, the new season here.
0: You know, I think you actually saying that it really makes a great point is like, I I think this will really be the first year where we start to see them pull back on what they're asking Getzloff to do. Like, I know that we've been talking about this for a few years, but like, it's really at the point that if the team is going to take any kind of a step forward, it has to be people not named Getzloff. And if he falls into that, you know, two, three hybrid uh, center role, then like putting him and Milano together makes a lot of sense. Like you said, they showed some good chemistry and If Milano's willing to just shoot it when he gets it, that's the best thing you can ask for for Getzloff. You know, it's got that David Perron quote where he just said, he makes everybody look good. You know, that's what Getzloff needs. He just needs guys who are going to, you know, skate, not stop moving, get shots, you know, when he gets on the puck. and Milano can skate really well and get into those open areas. You know, and if he can just kind of do that, it's hard not to think that couldn't, you know, be good. How high Milano's ceiling is, I'm not really sure. You know, it's hard to. I don't think he's going to be a 30 goal guy, but you don't need that. You have other guys you're kind of hoping for to turn into those guys. So if he can just do, you know, 15 goals, like that's huge.
1: Yeah. He's competing with all these guys kind of around his age right now, where, you know, you're looking to stick around for when this project really starts to kick forward and the Ducks start to get good yeah. again. You know, Sunday Milano isn't going to be a first line player for the Ducks when. Anaheim is back competing in the playoffs, uh, you know, and, and being a competitive team at that point, Ryan gets likely won't be with the franchise anymore. If he is, it is in a reduced role. Like you said, the Ducks are going to have to start exploring at some point. So Milano will be competing with the likes of Max Jones and Troy Terry and even Jakob Silberg and Ricardo Cal to be that kind of second line and, and third-line secondary scoring option. And, you know, what better way to, to kind of launch into that than, than starting with Ryan Getzlaff? But, you yeah, know, I, I think your point on Ryan Getzlaff is key. Is I, I think not only for Getzlaff's sake do they have to kind of start pulling back on the responsibility and, and the pressures that they heap on him. Like, I don't think he's going to play 1843 a night uh, heading into this new season like he did last year. You would have to think, you know, a guy like Sam Steele, who you know at 22 heading into to being 23 is going to have to take a step forward, and the way Adam Henrique played last year, that some of that pressure can be taken off as well, and even. You know, Trevor Zegris, it's going to be tough to find a spot for him to play at center this year, barring any injuries, but even getting Zegris some time at center to give Getzlaff a little bit of time off uh, on the night as well. I think I think that's going to be key for the Ducks moving forward, not only for Getzlaff to kind of just maintain being an effective player for Anaheim, but to get some of these younger players and some of these other guys in the lineup more ice time in critical situations.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I think at a certain point, you just have to start playing guys and if they're not going to start playing the younger guys then we're never really going to know what they can do you kind of just got to throw them into the pool and see if they swim you know and I think the one thing we saw last year is that you know they can move Henrik to the wing so you know if you bring Zegres up and he kind of shows that he can handle playing center you know you could put him between you know Silverberg and Henry can kind of insulate them a little bit that way. You give them guys who can play. You give them guys who are a little bit more responsible defensively and guys who, well, not you know they're not great goal scorers, but like they've both shown that they can finish. Yeah. And so if you kind of insulate them with that, I think that gives you an opportunity. But you said it like at a certain point they just have to stop playing. Get off twenty minutes a night, or you're never going to know what anybody can do.
1: No, exactly. And you know we we move into the the second signing here, which. Uh, it's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where you know we're talking about Sonny Milano <laughs> and how he can improve and how, how the Ducks can find a spot for him. And now you, you move on to Jakob Larsson, who signs a two-year deal at 1.2 average annual value. And you, you kind of, with him, are, are wondering if he even just gets in the lineup at this point. I mean, he did play 60 games for the Ducks last year, which is, honestly, if you had asked me before the show, I would have thought he played a lot less. Just the way he played last year was not – a great season for Jakob Larson, but the Ducks just don't have that many options. I mean, outside of Cam Fowler, Josh Manson and Hampus Lindholm, it's it's really a mixed bag of whoever's healthy and whoever's playing well between Larson, uh, Christian Juice when he came over, Eric Branson, obviously Josh Mahur up a couple times. And, and now you add into the fact that the Ducks have brought in Cody Curran, you know, they still have to sign Delzato and Irwin if that happens there is a lot of guys who are fighting for the spot. I didn't even mention Brendan Gooley as well. So, I mean, you know, Larson comes in, signs a new contract, but I don't think that means there's any guarantee that he's in the Ducks starting six come the start of next season.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think he's a lock to make the NHL roster out of camp. I think, you know, Jacob Larson, despite the fact that it feels like we've been talking about him as Ducks fans for, you know, 20 years now, he's only 22. And, And I think that's kind of gives him a little bit of a help and it kind of hurts him a little bit as far as in the organization, because like, I feel like nobody within the organization wants to move on because, you know, this was a guy who, when they took him, it was considered a good pick. They were like, he can be a steady two way puck moving defenseman on the back end, play a middle pair role, do a good job. You know, he's never going to be, he's never going to excel, but he could be a steady guy for them. And, you know, I know, Murray has talked about that injury being mishandled when he was over in Sweden, but I just, I don't know. It's hard to see, even though he's only 22, it's hard to see him turning into much more than he already is. And at that, he's a AHL defenseman. Like, I just don't know, you know, he's a good enough skater and he's got decent size, I guess, but I don't know that the upside is high enough to keep playing him. And I don't know that his floor is high enough to think he has to be in the lineup just, to stop the bleeding
1: yeah like you always expected that he would turn into kind of a Hampus Lindholm light where he would just be a responsible two-way defenseman who can chip in offensively but he's not going to wow you. he's not going to be flashy but he can do the job And, and I think you know the struggle for Jacob Larson is he hasn't come in and been solid defensively you know he's has holes in his game. And, and when you look at the underlying numbers, he hasn't been great. And he, he hasn't contributed well to the ducks offensively or defensively. And I, I think, yeah, he's 23 and, and, you know, on paper, he, he could be one of those guys. Like you, you look at obviously Shay Theodore is a different breed, but losing Shay Theodore, what he's gone and done with Vegas and even Marcus Pedersen, you know, moving on from him and what he's gone and done in Pittsburgh and, and really upped his game and become a solid defenseman for the Pittsburgh penguins, you know, you always, and I think the organization is kind of wary of that, and, and giving him another two-year contract to kind of prove himself. Saying, you know, if we move on from this guy too quick, like he's still only 23, he could go on to another organization and become a reliable NHL defenseman just because of a change of scenery. So I think, you know, giving him that two-year contract extension, it gives him a little bit more time. I, I think he's going to struggle this year just because you know Josh Manson is or Josh Mahura is going to make a push. Uh, Brandon Gooley's obviously going to want to get back on on the roster as well. And, you know, there really only are two jobs up for grabs when you think Fowler, Manson, Lindholm, and Gabranson are going to take those top four spots. Yeah,
0: I... Yeah, you know, it's kind of like I said before. Like, I just think the... He's just kind of a weird sunk cost at this point. It feels unfair. Like you said, he's 23. It's like, it's kind of unfair to give up on a kid like that, especially when you took him with a first-round pick. But I just think when players succeed in change of scenery, sometimes that's the only way they succeed, right? You see them move on and it's like, okay, I'm away from all of this pressure. Like, again, this is a guy who was taken with a first round pick. It was during Anaheim's run of like legitimate contention. So every pick they made, like they had some expectations of, despite what, you know, maybe the numbers say about end of first round picks. Like these are guys they were hoping to, hoping to contribute at some point. You know, like you said, the hope was that he's 75, 80% of Hampus Lindholm. And at this point, I'd rather play Christian Juice every night. Like, I just just think that's a better choice. And I don't know, you know, maybe this is kind of like the DeLoree signing where you're just like, all right, let's just get him on. He's played the games. He gives us a body for the expansion draft. But I I don't know. I just, I think you're right that I don't expect him to be a significant part of the team next year. And if he is... I don't think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and at this point, too, like I'd almost rather see what somebody else could bring, like Christian Juice. Like I think Juice, Cody Curran, Josh Mahura, I think they bring different things to the Ducks' defense that they don't really have. Like Obviously, Cam Fowler's a great skater. He's a good two-way defenseman. Offensively, he's capable enough to chip in. You know, He makes a good first pass he can chip in now and then but he's not an offensive defenseman obviously we know what Josh Manson is Hampus Lindholm again just in the, in the same breath as as Cam Fowler is, is an excellent two-way defenseman can contribute offensively here and there but juice and and from what we've seen from Cody Curran and and from the small sample size we've seen from Josh Manson they're more offensive defenseman, something the Ducks haven't had, and at this point, like we know what Jakob Larson is, I'd rather kind of give those other guys a shot, see what they can bring, and see how that new dynamic really improves the Ducks' blue line, and when you have three guys like that breathing down the back of your neck to get into a roster spot, that's either going to motivate Jacob Larson, or it's going to be the end of his time in Anaheim, I mean, we'll have to see, but he's got a lot of competition, and that's not even taking into account that you know, if the Ducks do sign uh, Michael Delzado or Matt Irwin or both, he's got even more guys vying for a, a roster spot behind him as well.
0: Yeah, I, um, you know, I think Mahura is the one. Mahura and Gouley are the two that really intrigued me as far as that, you know, that bottom kind of three role. I think both of those guys can play on their offhand, you know, and we don't really know what to expect of Curran, you know, or Axel Anderson really. Like none of those guys that we have that are right-handed are should be considered a lock is what i'll say so i think you know a guy like josh maher who can maybe come in and run the second power play like the ducks power play has been bad for a while if you have players in the system that can come up and maybe try to change that just by being new faces and new bodies like i think that's more important and i don't think jacob larson is a guy you're going to put on your power play
1: no, I, I hope not. <laughs> I, mean, that, I really hope that's not the direction Dallas Aitken is leaning. But, I mean, hey, we've seen Eric and Branson on the power play at times, so I, I think with the Ducks defense, anything anything at this point is up in the air. But we do have a couple remaining UFAs and RFAs, not many, not really any big names. We already mentioned two in Del Zotto and Irwin. Ryan Miller is a UFA, and, and I think honestly the ball is is in his court there, and whether he wants to come back or not, I think if he does, the Ducks are going to bring him back. Uh, but if he feels like he's done and and you know he'd rather retire and spend time with his family, then I think you know then he doesn't come back, and the Ducks are looking for a backup goaltender. And then Kiefer Sherwood uh, is the lone, I guess major RFA. Uh, that the Ducks have. They do have various other RFA and UFAs uh, in the AHL as well. But these are kind of the headlining names. We'll start with the two defensemen. Do you think, one, do you think Delzato and Irwin come back? And do you think really there's any even benefit to having either of these guys come back?
0: I think if one of them is likely to come back, it's Delzato. I mean, the thing with Irwin is is it got rid of Corbinian Holzer, and yet somehow we got a pick in that deal. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a win. You know, Irwin was fine for a terrible team at the end of the year. I think Delzado's the one for me that's kind of the canary in the coal mine. Like if he comes back on a deal and if he's playing every night again, like that's just not a good sign. You know, I mean, like (laughs) I feel like we could be, you know, 15, 20 games into the season and you're looking at a third line, a third pairing of Delzado and Larson and Ducks fans are just, you know, bashing their head into the wall. You, you know, I I understand that he has a little bit more offensive upside. He's a decent skater. He's got a good pass. But I just, there's no, I guess it's, this is one of those things where just like I fundamentally disagree with Bob Murray, which I know is a, a take for Ducks fans. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't see what the benefit of playing Delzato is over just letting some of these kids, even if you just keep cycling them up and down, up and down, scratching this one, scratching that one, you know, giving them different chances. What was the point of re signing Gouley, Larson, and Juice, plus keeping Mahara? Like, unless they're going to make a trade, there's no reason to have all of those guys and then bring back Delzado and Irwin. It just, I don't see the benefit of it.
1: Yeah, I I don't see it. I think Irwin is gone for sure. I think, you know, the reason that trade was made was to get out from under and Holzer and they got a pick back, so you might as well make it. I mean, they're they're pretty much identical in terms of impact that they're going to give you. For Del Zotto, I, I think, you know, any chance he had of coming back was dashed when the Ducks went out and signed Cody Curran. Like, they had their roster to begin with. Larson, Juice, you know, Gooley, Maher, they're all still here. Del Zotto's spot essentially got taken by Cody Curran. You know, whether Curran plays with Anaheim or in San Diego... I just don't see the benefit, like you'd mentioned, of bringing Delzato back when you can give ice time to Juice, even to Larson or to Gouli or Mahura. Like when you have four guys there that are relatively young that could get game time and, and that could, you know, that we really haven't seen a ton of them either, there's just more upside to even just rotating those guys in and out, like you said, than bringing a guy like Delzato who's 30 and you know what you're going to get from him. Like he's, he's more of a piece that a team like the Blues did, that are competing and looking to make a long run and need some depth on the blue line. They know what they're going to get from Del Zotto. That's the type of team that goes out and, and brings Del Zotto in. I hope the Ducks don't because if they do resign him, you know, that kind of signals that their intention isn't really focused on a rebuild and it is just kind of to make do and, and, and try and be – competitive and at least try and put up a good season. But I think at this point, like when we've announced all these signings, like I just don't think there's any way he comes back. I think if it was, he would have been probably one of the first names that, uh, that would have been resigned instead of a guy like Jakob Larson.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know why, but for some reason in my head, and probably just because it's in my prayers every night, Cody Curran, I keep thinking of him as a right-handed defender, and he's a lefty, like you said. You know, and Bob Murray said it himself. He kind of gave the game away. He goes, this is a guy that we've had our eye on for a while. You know, he finally kind of took that leap. I think he won, like, either best defenseman or league MVP. He won both. Yeah. So, you know, and they signed him for two years at $1 million, and he's 30. Like, this is a guy that you have to think is going to come in and compete for that third spot night in, night out. And then on top of that, you've got all the guys we already said. You've still got Simone Benoit. And we didn't even talk about the fact that they re-signed Yanni Hockenpah, who apparently yeah. at the end of the season kind of you know, earned his way onto that that last pairing just by being 6'5". You know, like, I just – there aren't going to be enough chairs when the music stops. And I don't know why Delzato and Irwin, unless they're like perfect locker room guys and like everybody loves them. I don't see why what they've done to earn a spot. I think Delzado, like you said, he makes a lot more sense for a competing team as a budget signing. And, you know, yeah, okay. Like the Blues were like, yeah, we can just play this guy whenever we want. We don't need to worry about it, but at least we know what he is. He's a known quantity, and that that's the kind of thing that doesn't do the Ducks any good.
1: No, exactly. And and honestly, for me, the most interesting signing the Ducks have left to make, it's an RFA signing, probably should happen. Uh, But it's for Sherwood, because he's kind of been in and out of the Ducks lineup. Last year wasn't a great year for him. I think he only played a handful of games in Anaheim, like, compared to the season prior to that, where he played a lot more. He has a role, I think, where he could play well with Anaheim. The only problem is now that you've brought in Sonny Milano, you've brought in Danton Heinen, you still have Silverberg and Raquel, and you've got all these young guys and Jones and Terry and Comtois that are, are kind of looking to make their way into the lineup, it just doesn't feel like Keith for Sherwood's path to the NHL roster is as clear as it was anymore. Even with Corey Perry gone. Like it just doesn't seem like he really has a place unless you want to play him on the fourth line and I think he can be a a fairly good fourth line player I just don't see where he really fits in outside of San Diego at this point
0: yeah so uh, I would say two things on that one is I think you said it right I think as we've seen the game evolve and speed and skill has gotten more important we need to think about fourth lines the way we used to think about third lines which is guys who just kind of hold their head above water they're not going to you know they're not going to light the ice on fire in either direction right you're not going to score 10 goals with them on the ice they're not going to give up 10 goals on the ice i for me that's exactly what key for Sherwood is. he's shown enough ability to skate he's shown enough ability as far as you know a little bit of offensive upside but i don't think he's ever going to be are we like? i don't know that he'll ever get to 30 points but if he's your fourth-line guy, that's perfect. The issue, like he's a perfect guy to have on your fourth line, to put on your uh, your penalty kill, and just kind of have out there. He's shown an ability to run around and hit people. And I will, look, I think we all have those moments where we see somebody do something and we just decide in that moment forever they're our guy. His first game, he made this outside-inside, you know, puck deep on the wall And this is as a rookie. Like, this is his first game in the NHL. And he was just like, no, I'm just – I don't care. I'm going to do it. And that, to me, is a mentality that I don't think the Ducks have had. I think especially under Randy Carlisle, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I just think it's a lot of doing the bare minimum and no one necessarily being willing to just try to make things happen, which is one of the things I love about Milano – He's going to try things. Even if it doesn't work, I'd rather you fail doing something interesting than immediately give up, dump it, and change. Like, that just doesn't do anybody any good. I think Sherwood should be a fourth-line guy. He can play on the third line maybe or the fourth line, but I don't think he's going to be a top-six guy. And I think that's fine. I don't think – I mean, I know that he's 25, but, like, I just – I think it's important to start developing depth. He is a guy who can play a depth role and be consistent and aggressive and contribute
1: He's just going to be a guy like, and no matter what sport you play, everybody loves a guy who can go out there and leave it all on the ice or leave it all on the field. And I think every time Kiefer Sherwood plays, he does that. Like he gives a hundred and ten percent. If you want to use a cliche, like he will right. never have a night off. He'll never have a lazy game. If you put him in the lineup, like he will put in a shift. And I, I agree. Like, He's I, weird. I, I, yeah, and, and I, I don't think the Ducks have a ton of guys. Like that. And I think a lot of that was just, you know, losing sucks. And the Ducks' mentality when having Randy Carla wasn't the greatest. The locker room wasn't the greatest. And it's been reported that they, they you know, Randy Carlisle really didn't have the room when he was there. And, and I'm sure that's, you know, from Happy. what we've seen, it, it looks like it's different under Dallas Aikens. And, and I think Keith for Sherwood can be that key fourth line guy where you just throw out your fourth line for some energy. And, you know, maybe they'll chip it, into offense because Keith for Sherwood. Is is willing to make that extra move or try something like you said, and, and that's what you want your fourth line to do. And, and honestly, if you look at the Ducks over the last couple of years, the one thing they really haven't had a problem with is getting depth scoring from their fourth line. When you look at guys like Nick DeLoria and Carter Rowney and Derek Grant, the fact that literally Derek Grant and and Nick DeLoria both had hat tricks last year, like it's it, that they're that's not a problem for the Ducks. And finding good players to play on their fourth line and getting production out of them and, and having another one of those guys that you can rely, rely on, especially if Derek Grant ends up staying in Philadelphia, or going somewhere else, you've now got Grant Rowney, Deloria and David Backus, who I all am comfortable with having on that fourth line and going out there and, and playing hard and putting in a shift.
0: Yeah. I, I think, uh,
1: you know, I think you kind
0: of said it like the depth scoring isn't the issue, but at the same time, like, that's not that's not what you're looking at those guys to do. You're just looking at them to hold water, play ten minutes a night, twelve minutes a night, and just be fine. They just they need to be able to go out long enough to let your top two lines and your third line now that the game is, you know, so much more open, like to be able to get a breath. Like you don't want to get yourself to the end of the game and all of a sudden you realize those three guys haven't played. Like I love George Perros. He's one of my favorite players of all time. There's a reason his like average time on ice is like a minute and a half. Like, he just wasn't a guy you were going to play that long. And I think, you know, and this is, I guess, a little cynical, but it's like we're a cap league, and I think this matters. Like, Kiefer Sherwood is the kind of guy that just keeps signing two- and three-year deals at really manageable rates, and he's just a consistent guy in the locker room. Like you said, he's going to work hard every night. Like, I just think there's some level of institutional value to just keeping guys around who work hard, do a good job, and they're never going to be expensive. You know, I don't think you want to be in a position where you're trading a fourth round pick for Nicholas Delorie necessarily. Like, I don't hate that move. I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily down on Delorier like
1: a lot of people are.
0: But I just think if Kiefer Sherwood is on your fourth line for ten years, like, there's far worse problems to have.
1: Yeah, and, and the fact that you 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 signed him undrafted, right? Like, you literally didn't spend any assets to go get him, right? You know, to bring in a player like that. Like, it's not like. It was a Nick Ritchie situation where you drafted Key for sure with tenth overall, and the expectations don't match, you know, the production he's giving on the ice. Right, like Nick Ritchie wasn't a bad player; he was a decent player. He could put up thirty points. He could fit in. Like he made dumb decisions, but like he's an NHL player in terms of like his capability. The problem with Nick Ritchie in Anaheim it was who's never going to work because he was picked so high. And and you know you, what you you get the what if situation where you know Pasternak went in that draft. Dylan Larkin went five picks later. Like you, it was always going to be like the what if for Nick Ritchie. It never was going to work out here. But for Kiefer Sherwood, it doesn't matter. Like he was undrafted. The fact that he's even scraping the NHL roster is well above the expectations. I'm sure the Ducks had when they brought him in. They thought he could you know contribute at the AHL level. And if he made it to the NHL, that's a bonus. So I think having him around at this point it's just great to have that depth. And if not, he's a great player for San Diego. And I think he's comfortable being that guy who can bounce between both the NHL and the AHL. And I'm sure when he signs his contract, it will probably be a two-way deal where, you know, the ducks are paying him the the same, whether he's in the AHL or the NHL anyway. Um, let's move on to the last guy here. I don't want to say so much if he's going to sign. Cause like I said, for Ryan Miller, a lot of it's kind of up in the air. In his personal situation, I more so want to shift the discussion to are you comfortable going into next season if Anthony Stolars was John Gibson's backup?
0: This is kind of a punt and I, I apologize, but like I think <laughs> it depends on what you're asking for next season. Yeah. You know, if the question is like everything Bob Murray says seems to indicate that he thinks this is at the very minimum a wild card team. If that's legitimately the expectation, I'm not 100% sure that I feel comfortable with Stolarz, just because I don't think we really know what he is. Like he could be fine, he could not be. But if that's what it is, I think you're better off going out and getting, you know, like like James Reimer is a good and bad example. Like go get Louis Dumain. Just get a guy who can, you know, you can play, you know, 15, 20 games a night, he'll be fine. If they just are just trying to let their guys develop accept that they're going to be another team in the lottery again. Then, yeah, I don't care. Bring him up. See what he can do. If you're lucky, maybe you flip him down the line for a pick or something like that. But, like, uh, unless you're expecting to make the playoffs, I don't think the backup goalie is really should be an area of concern. Do I want Ryan Miller back? Absolutely. But I think John Gibson's going to play 50 to 60 games next year no matter what. And it the backup goalie only matters insofar as what you think the Ducks should be.
1: Yeah, the backup position really only matters if you are a competitive team and you need to give a goaltender a rest. If you look at a team like Toronto right now who's aggressively pursuing not only just a backup goaltender, but there's rumors that they might be trading Freddie and looking at Matt Murray. Like A team like Toronto was a team that would be aggressively pursuing a backup goalie because they were playing Freddie Anderson way too much, tiring him out, and they were trying to be a good team. For the Ducks at this point... When you look at what realistic projections could be for them next season, there's no point in aggressively pursuing a successor to Ryan Miller, who is arguably one of the better backup goaltenders in the league, because they're not going to be a cup contender. They're not even likely going to be a playoff contending team. So at this point, like I'm fine if, it, if, if Ryan Miller doesn't want to come back. Obviously, I'd love him to come back. But why not give the shot to to Anthony Stolarz? So the Ducks do have a lot of goaltenders in their system at this point. You know, Lucas Dostel went back to Finland this year, but they still have Ole Eriksson, who spent a lot of the year in the East Coast Hockey League last year. They've got Roman Derny. like They've got guys that can play in San Diego if they felt like, you know, we'll play Anthony Stolarz 15 games this year, and John Gibson is, is going to play the majority of our games and, and, and see if he can get back to that. Like, I'm... I'm fine with that. More so, I'm just worried about John Gibson getting back to his best. I know he's been sewered a lot by the Ducks' defense and their overall play, but my focus, yeah, more so, is is getting John Gibson back to his best for when the Ducks are a competitive team again. That he can be a, the reliable, you know, guy to carry them all the way.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think for me, the two things that are important is, I don't think the backup should matter. The problem is, is me and you don't get to make those decisions. And it's Bob Murray. And if he's expecting them to be a wild card team and Miller doesn't come back and Stellars comes in and is like, not great. That means next summer we're going to hear the same song and dance about how, you know, the, the core is disappointing me. Some of my younger guys need to step up. It's like, no, dude, you're just not where you think you are. And that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, as far as John Gibson's concerned, if we can get to the end of next season and the light hasn't left his eyes like it did the last month of this season. I that's a win. I John Gibson seems to be a competitor. He's we have seen him at his best. You know, he did the Connor Hellebuck thing last season, Connor Hellebuck did it this season and just lasted a little bit longer. And the season ended shorter. So, you know, I mean, he was incredible last year, like he should have absolutely been in the Vezina conversation. I don't think John Gibson is the problem. I think. If there is an issue, you worry about the team in front of him being able to give him something to look forward to as far as playing his best every night. I just, I don't know that you want to go out and be a Vezin cal- caliber goalie every night when you look in front of you and you're like, dude, half of these guys aren't going to be on the team next year.
1: And I think, too, like he has to know there's some direction to get back to being right. a competitive team. Like, yes, he's only 27, but at the same breath, he's 27. Like, Six years right. left before he gets to a point where you're like, oh, he's probably on the downturn of his career, and that's probably being generous. I mean, you know, the Ducks haven't given any signs to John Gibson or to, to the younger core of this team that they're moving in a direction that they will be a competitive team in that six year time span. And meanwhile you look down the road at LA and and all the moves that they've made, of course, Kopitar and Dowdy are still there, but the big trades that they've made and, and you know, the guys they've offloaded to facilitate this rebuild and get more draft picks and 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 really also drafting well at the same time like the ducks have not displayed that they're willing to do that and obviously Bob Murray's the big focus of that he hasn't displayed he's willing to do that you know signing 29-year-old Jacob Silverberg to a contract extension signing Adam Henrique who's now 30 to a contract extension like moves that don't make a ton of sense you know bringing in Nick DeLore I I have nothing against Nick DeLore but it really did make sense to bring a guy like that in and and then you know keeping Josh Manson and not trading him and bringing in a guy like Eric Abrams like you're just bringing in older guys as kind of stop gaps at this point and not moving the assets you have to kind of facilitate that rebuild and I think obviously getting Zegras was what Bob Murray kind of felt was enough to say that the rebuild is going and, and they didn't really want to do anything with that and then you know, he makes his one trade a year as Brandon Montour uh, last year. It was Andre Kasher this year where you kind of move on, but he's moving on from younger players. He's, he's arguably trading the wrong guys. And and when you look at, you know, Silverberg probably should have been traded when he was up for UFA status, the season he was having, you probably could have got a return for him. And you know, at some point last year, the way Adam Henrique was playing, there should have been at least some offers explored and getting rid of him and bringing back some, some draft picks as well. And, now, Ricard Raquel, with the contract he has, I love the guy. I think he can get back to it at, at some point or at least close to what he was doing a couple of years ago. But at some point you have to explore, you know, how valuable a player of that caliber is on a contract like that to another team and really just start getting back to a point where, you know, you're, you're doing the rebuild properly.
0: Yeah. You know, I think the thing for me that's interesting is like, I do feel like, uh, so like, like I said, George Paris is one of my favorite players. I'm kind of you know, secretly a 75-year-old man in the type of hockey that I like. <laughs> I, uh, For me, Nicholas Delorier was one of those moves that actually made a lot of sense and to me directly contradicts the Silferberg and Henrik signing. Because if you're telling me that Bob Murray is Bob Murray and we know how he thinks, he's going to bring up all of these kids on ELCs and really give them a shot to make a name for themselves. Bringing in a guy like Delorier who, as much as people may not like it, they may not agree with it, whatever – He's going to go out there and he is going to hit people and he's going to punch them in the face if they hit those kids. That makes sense to me to bring in a guy like that who's willing to do those kind of things to keep morale up, you know, to to have his guys back if you're going to play a bunch of 22-year-olds. But doing that and bringing back two 29-year-olds, like you said, Henrique just turned 30, you know, on almost $5 million and $6 million contracts. Like, what are we doing? Like – None of the moves, like you said, add up to a cohesive plan. Bob Murray kind of seems to be fighting himself at every turn, and you just have to wonder, like, at what point does he commit to a direction? Because Nicolas Delorier doesn't help you rebuild on the fly, and Adam Henrique, for five years, doesn't help you get better five years from now. He just seems to kind of be straddling the line, and I think... I think it's just because he knows he's not going to get fired and that's just not a good enough reason to make a decision.
1: Yeah. I I think he's, he's trying to hold on to, you know, he thinks that this team is better than they are obviously having, you know, key players like Campus Lindholm and, and John Gibson, and even Ryan Getzlaff at this age, who are still quality players in the NHL. I think Bob Murray doesn't want to face the fact that the Ducks are going to have to go in into a rebuild. And and the decisions he's made at this point have extended that period by a couple of years and in, in not moving some of these players out. Like, you know, everybody has their, their thoughts on when they think the Ducks can be competitive again. And a lot of that comes down to drafting and how well, you know, these players develop and pan out. But, Travis Egger's at this point I don't think is enough to to bring the Ducks to the promised land and you know you've got a 6 overall pick you've got a 27th overall pick in this NHL draft as well that are going to they're going to add to that but you think of the assets or prospects or picks you could have got for trading Silverberg in, in the season he had when he was a UFA and you know the season Henrique was having last year adding some more picks in in, in especially this year's draft which is panning out to be one of the best drafts in the last you know decade or so that's when you need to start making these moves and and you know bringing in younger players and getting them into the organization at this point. So you're not bringing in you know a fifth overall pick three years down the road who's not going to be in the team until two or three years after that, right? Like it 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 just it just felt like you like you said. I think you explained it perfectly. Like he was just kind of fighting himself on that decision. But nonetheless, we we do have a draft coming forward. The Ducks are going to add to. That prospect pool that includes Trevor Ziegris among others. We got the sixth overall pick after LA jumped up to number two. So that kinda that kinda hurt us a bit. But the warning Ducks things. Yeah, I know, I know. And then New York Rangers getting first overall, which I don't hate, but just the fact that a placeholder team got number one was Right. Just just such a weird decision. But then Boston also uh losing up to Tampa Bay means the Ducks ended up getting the twenty seventh overall pick. So we do have the entire draft locked down for Anaheim. So looking at that first round, number six and number 27, I think number six is a bit easier to kind of analyze the few guys who the Ducks could take here. And I know we've we've chatted about this a couple times and we've wrote a few articles on this. At number six, at this point in time, who is your guy? Who's your go-to guy for the Ducks to take there?
0: So I think it is fair to admit when we – aren't experts on something. I think that's a good thing to do. And so Dmitry Filipovich did a podcast with Chris Peters and Cam Robinson a couple months ago, just kind of going through the lottery as they kind of expected it to be. And the two players for me that I think stand out the most are uh, Raymond and Holtz. I think it's Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz. And I am very much torn between those two because It sounds like Holtz might have the best shot in the draft, and I think Ducks fans everywhere can agree that the Ducks have no finishing. Like, they just don't have enough guys who have the goal-scoring upside to give you confidence going forward. That being said, it does sound like Raymond is a more complete uh, complete character and more capable of driving a line on his own, and so I'm kind of torn between being able – to keep Zegras and this year's sixth pick separate and use that to cement two good lines or bringing in someone like Holtz and just letting him and Zegras do the Perry Getze thing for, you know, 10 years. And this is assuming everybody turns out to be what we hope they are. But I think those are the two guys. If either of those guys, if both of those guys are gone, I think you take Jamie Dreesdale because I just think there's no way to go wrong with a really high offensive upside right-handed defenseman. So those are the three names for me. I think at this point I would probably lean uh, towards Raymond.
1: Yeah, and and I think the the good thing when you when you think about this is is. You know, last year we picked ninth, so we were speculating names, and and you know there were guys. You're like, oh, he's probably not going to be there. He's probably not going to be there. And, and mm-hmm. Trevor Zegers was one of those guys where like, oh, he's probably not going to be there. Like, he's probably going to be taken before number nine, and the Ducks aren't going to get him. It's so much different this year because you mentioned three names, and at least one, if not two, of those guys will be there at number six. Right. With you know Lafreniere going one, Byfield and Stutzel probably going two and three. And then it all depends who goes at four and five. And even if it was Raymond and Holtz or so Raymond and Dreisel who went four and five, you've got one of those guys at least still on the board for the Ducks. So they're going to get a good player. There are other good names like Perfetti and Rossi and, and other guys who are going to be there. But I'd, I'd have to agree with you on, the, on those. Those are my three guys looking at you know the direction the Ducks need to go. And you can't go wrong bringing in a, a complete player like Lucas Raymond. And, and just because you know he's not a great goal scorer, he could End up being a great partner for Trevor Zegris down the road because he can do everything, can put the puck in the back in net. So can and so can Trevor Zegris. and I think bringing in a player who can drive a line with a player with the the hockey IQ and passing ability of Trevor Zegris, you can't go wrong with that. Like I, I don't think it's a direct comparison, but when you look at what Colorado's been able to do with with McKinnon and Rantanen, you know none of those guys are are I guess pure snipers in terms of they just play complete games, and obviously McKinnon's one of the best players in the game. But it's not that traditional, you know, Getzlaf Perry combo or or that playmaker sniper combo. But it still works out, and you know, even if it was Alexander Holtz, you can only imagine a guy with one of the best shots in the in the last decade paired with a guy who's considered to be the the best passer outside the NHL right now. Like just the the dream situation of that being put together and what those two could do uh, is almost too good to pass up. But you know, the, the Ducks aren't really in a position to go in and draft on positional need either. Cause you know, Jamie Giesel could fit too. Like they need a right shot defenseman. They need finishers. They need complete players. Like they're at a spot right now where any of those guys kind of work for them. I, I think I, I slightly lead towards Alexander Holtz just because of, of that potential pairing between him and Trevor Zegras. But I don't think anybody should be disappointed if they end up getting Lucas Raymond or, or, or Jamie Dreisel either. Like both of those guys are going to be key pieces to the Ducks future moving forward. Take a quick break here and get a message from one of our sponsors. You've counted on restaurants, now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Also, many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on its way. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $50 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off your order and zero delivery fees when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash.
0: Yeah, I you know I think the thing, and this is this is kind of that like you remind me of my ex girlfriend, so I'm not going to date you kind of thing, and it's not necessarily fair. The thing that the the only reason I'm apprehensive about Holtz is because, like you said, if you have a guy who has you know arguably the best shot in the draft based on what we're hearing, and then you have a guy like Trevor Zegers who was just an insane highlight reel pass passer, I, I do think. That there is going to be a temptation to keep them together at all times. And while that isn't necessarily bad, I do think we saw in the Getzloff and Perry era how hard it is to either A, split those two guys up to try and let them do it on their own, or if you do keep them together, how many resources you're then going to spend trying to find a guy to play behind them. And I think the idea of having Raymond and Zegris on two separate lines and then getting, you know, maybe a less high. High skill player all around, but bringing in just a guy who can shoot because that's the thing. Like Alexander Holtz isn't a slouch by any means; he's still good at everything else. He just his shot is his main weapon, and I just think bringing in a guy like Lucas Raymond, who can, like you said, he can play with uh, Trevor Zegris or he can be on a second line. You know, I think one of the things we saw with Chicago is that while there are times where they would play tabes and Kane together one of the biggest benefits that they had is being able to have those two guys on separate lines. You always had someone on the ice who could drive play. And I think the Ducks have seen over the last few years that not having that is a problem.
1: And, and you could just get, like you said, a, a, a shooter. A guy who, yeah. you know, Holtz holds does a lot of things well. He just happens to have a very great shot. But there are players out there who their game is, they have a great shot. And if you put them yeah. with a passer like Trevor Zegers, they're going to score goals. And the Ducks have a, a couple guys like that on the roster. You look at, you know, Jakob Silverberg, a great shot. Pair him with a, a player uh, of the ability of a guy like Trevor Zegers. He's going to do well. And, and the same goes for Ricard Raquel. And and Derek Lee, you know, fellow Ducks contributor for the Hockey Writers, put an article the other day about how the, a lot of the Ducks' fate for 2021 relies on Ricard Raquel and his production. You know, went from scoring thirty-three and thirty-four goals a couple of years ago to eighteen last year and fifteen this year. You now he didn't play the full season, so maybe he would have got close to twenty. But the production is down, and and maybe it, you know, maybe it's pairing him with a player who's willing to do things creatively, like a Trevor Zegris to get him back to that point. And then you bring in a Lucas Raymond to play on his own line and you can put him with some other players where he's driving that line and, and Zegris and, and, and Raquel are driving that top line.
0: Right. And I think, I, I think, you know, Ricard Raquel is a perfect example of kind of what we're talking about with what we're looking at, because, you know, Ricard Raquel came on the scene. We thought he was the center. They chose him over Carlson when they made the uh, James Wisniewski trade you know, because Raquel was going to be a center. They move him to the wing. They realize he's got just an absolutely great shot. You know, I don't know that, you know, he's not Patrick Liney or Austin Matthews, but he's still got a great shot and he gets it off quick and he gets it on net. And so, you know, you have that guy and you're like, oh, awesome. This guy can maybe hit 40 goals. And then all of a sudden the infrastructure and the team around him kind of falls down and you realize he's a little bit more uh, line mate dependent than you first thought. And that's not a knock on him. Most guys are that there's a reason they're called elite players. Right? So he's the definition of a top six guy and that's awesome. But you need to have a second high end guy to help create an actual top six. You know, you can't like Raquel and Steele. I don't think is going to get you where you want from either of them. Steel is like a perfect guy to play with like a Raymond. You know, you have your guy who's going to drive the offense. Steele is not a slouch by any means, but he's more of a a traditional kind of a two-way guy. You know, he's going to make plays on both ends. He's going to be responsible. He's going to be smart. And then you've got Lucas Raymond who can just make magic happen on the other end. And then you've got Ricard Raquel. Like you said, you just put him next to Trevor Zegers and you just let him pull the trigger as much as he wants. You know, that to me seems like a better way to go about it. The only problem with this is now you start to get into that conversation about are you drafting for need? Are you drafting for fit? Are you doing best, best player available and I do think that the top of this draft outside of the top three is good enough that you can take some of those things into consideration and not really screw yourself. But it is something you still need to be thinking about and making sure you're not, you know, like, like that's the thing with the Nick Ritchie pick. Nick Ritchie was supposed to be Dustin Penner. He was supposed to be the guy that was going to play on the left of gets Off with Perry. And they were going to be that big heavy line. And he just was never that guy, but they drafted him to come in and be that guy. While Getzloff and Perry were still competitive, and it just backfired brutally in their face.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the tough situation there is that the NHL just changed so quickly around that time. Like the, the way the game was played, the way, you know, successful teams were built changed a couple seasons after that, pretty much. You look at the way teams drafted. After like Vertanen was taken in the top 10 of that draft by Vancouver, Michael Dalcall was taken by the Islanders, I think either that, that draft or the draft after, like the big player who could shoot and that was pretty much it, they were almost non-existent in terms of if you couldn't do anything else, if you couldn't skate, like now it's all about skating, you know, you look at a reason right. a player falls far in the draft now. A lot of it has to do with their skating. If they can't skate at what a scout believes is an average NHL level, they don't get drafted. And I think the Ducks were a victim to that. I, I think a lot of it, like you said, had to do with the fact that they wanted to create that big, heavy line that could compete in the Western Conference. You've got a young guy who you prove he could shoot the puck at what they thought was an NHL level. You could put him with a, a guy like Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry, and it was just going to be magic. And then, you know, the way successful teams played in the NHL changed, and and that big heavy style just didn't work anymore, or at least not to the same extent as as it was working for teams like the Kings and and the Bruins before it, right? And all of a sudden, you you know you get to a point where you know Nick Ritchie obviously didn't pan out either. It's not just on the NHL ch- changing, you know Nick Ritchie didn't fulfill that potential. His shot didn't translate to the NHL. The skating was an issue, and then he had discipline problems. So there was a lot of things that went into it, but. You know, the, the the Ducks are now in a situation where they are trying to build a skilled, fast team to fit with today's NHL, and they have a couple guys who you, you're wondering how much time do they have left, and I think Ricard Varela is one of those guys. It's crazy to believe that he's 27 already. It feels like, you know, he should yep. still be 23. He's been here forever, <laughs> and he's been a, a big part of, of the Ducks' recent success, and he still only makes $3.8 million for for the next two seasons. Like, how much time... Does Ricard Raquel have to bounce back? Because he had two great seasons and then two down seasons. Down I guess down seasons for for what we expected from him. He still went over forty points, which is a great top six contributor. But how much time does he have left to bounce back and really get to the point where he is a top, top player for this team?
0: Again, like I I do think this is kind of a different version of the Anthony Stolarz question, right? It's what are you expecting the team to do? Because the reality is, is we have seen that Ricard Raquel on his own is not enough to drag this team into the playoffs. There just don't exist guys like that. Like we saw Connor McDavid struggle with this, you know, early in his career. He's a generational talent. Like I don't – I'm not comparing the two. What I'm saying is that the bar is so high to drag a team into the playoffs by yourself that I think the reality is is if Ricard Raquel hits ten goals in twenty twenty five games, you flip him right away. You know, I don't think there's a reason to hold him past this draft, but if you really want to see if you can pump his value, I just think the moment he shows that he's really back, you gotta trade him right away. Because that that contract, especially in a flat cap, is perfect. Like that's just a wonderful sub four million dollar contract. He's got two years left on it. You know, he can play, like we said, he came into the league as a center. He seems to be a winger, but he can play on either side. And he's a perfect complementary player. Like he's the kind of guy that if you called up, you know, Edmonton and you were like, Hey, do you want to put this guy next to Connor McDavid? They're like, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the guy we want. You know, he plays a little bit heavier than you think from a skill guy. He's got good size. He can skate really well and he's got an awesome shot and he passes well. You know, Derek, in that piece made a comment about how, you know, his assist numbers have stayed pretty steady and he's actually a really good distributor. And he's absolutely right. You know, Ricard Raquel as a, as a, a complimentary piece on a competitive team is what he should be. Like he doesn't do a lottery team any good. It's a waste for both people. You know, the ducks aren't getting the value out of him that they could be. And he's not getting to compete. Like it just sucks. It sucks for everybody involved trading him for a pick just makes so much more sense.
1: And and he did, he won't hold more value than he will next year if he starts playing well. You think right. heading into 2020-2021 season, he'll have that year and next year. So he'll still have a full next year on his contract. So if he starts like you said firing all cylinders, you know, at the trade deadline he's on pace for 30-35 goals, I think at that point you just have to explore trading Well, obviously it depends where the ducks are at you know in that season if if they're surprising everybody and they're you know in for a playoff which would i don't expect them to be but if they are then you know that complicates the situation but it he'll have no more value than having a good season next year and having that extra year left on his contract at only 3.8 million you'll look at a team like look at what tampa bay did to get something they needed with some term on it. They gave a first round pick for Barkley Goodrell because they needed that type of player. And he had another year on the honest contract at a very affordable price for them. And again, a team that was crunched to the cap, like Ricard Raquel would be that type of player that a team like that would be looking for. And man, the guy only makes 3.8 million. He's at least at the very least going to be a 40 point player for us with, you know, the potential to be a 30 goal scorer, if we put them in the right situation with the right guys like that is obviously enticing for any team that is is in a competitive spot with, you know, their backs against the wall when it comes to the cap. And I, and I think, you know, I agree with you in that sense. If Ricard Raquel comes out of the gate hot next year, like as, as much as you'd love to see him continue to do well in the Ducks jersey, like that value is never going to be higher. The moment he steps into 2021, 2022 as a UFA, that value immediately gets lower because he's only got the rest of that season at 3.8 and he's going to sign an extension for more the next season after that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to jump ahead a little bit here, but I just think if you, you look at some of these teams that are up against uh, a flat cap and some of the players that they're spending money on and how much money they're spending on players that are not performing – how much do you think you could get back by taking on a bad, basically making the kasha trade, but with a better player, right? You take on a bad contract, you, you give up Ricard Raquel, that probably increases their points on that team and it decreases their cap hit. Like, if we were, like, if the Ducks wanted to take, uh, you know, Alexander Steen, could they get Vince Dunn and a pick? Like, I don't know, but they really want to clear space and they really want to keep competitive. You know what I mean? So I I think this is one of those things where I just you know, I always kind of get frustrated with myself when I talk about things like this because I always feel like I'm talking myself into being disappointed by Bob Murray who just doesn't think <laughs> about things this way. But it just there just seems to be so many opportunities if the Ducks are willing to get a little bit more creative to really set themselves up to be competitive for years. And the other thing about Raquel Put him on a functional power play? Are we sure he doesn't hit 40 goals? Like, like, I just think the upside for him on a competent team with other high-end players is so high that you could make, not make, but like you could get a really solid return for him and get more out of that return than you're going to get out of 30 goals out of Ricardo Raquel on a team that's still going to be in the bottom five.
1: And, and I think when you look around the league at what, teams are paying right now, especially what bad GMs are playing for fairly similar players. Like, Kasperi Kapanen, I think, is a fairly similar player in terms of production to what Ricard Raquel is, and and even less Mm -hmm. of what Ricard Raquel can bring, and Kapanen brought in a former second-round pick in Philip Hollander and the 15th overall pick from the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I know the Penguins are notorious for trading away their first-round picks Uh, But if you're the Ducks, like, they were on the opposite end of that, I think. The the fact that, you know, LeBron put out that the Ducks were trying to get Kapanen, they should almost be the team who's trying to sell players like Kapanen. And and Ricard Raquel falls in that mix. Like, if Kapanen is getting you a 15th overall pick and a decent prospect, the thought of what Ricard Raquel could get you with another couple years on his contract, like, you have to be exploring that. And And I think, you know, one, the one you mentioned in you know, Vince Dunn and taking on Steen's contract, that is a team that Bob Murray and the Ducks should be keying in on right now because it's clear from the Blues have made it clear by trading Jake Allen and not retaining any salary and not bringing anything back, they are trying to move Cap out to sign Alex Petrangelo. They are the team you should be keying in on when they have young players like Vince Dunn and Jordan Kiru and Robert Thomas, uh, guys like that that you'd be like, hey man, like, I can give you Ricard Raquel right now. I'll take Alexander Steen's entire contract. You give me a first round pick and one of those guys, a Vince Dunn or a Robert Thomas. And and that's it. See you later. We've helped you sign Alex Petrangelo. We've given you a player like Ricard Raquel who can give you more than what, you know, maybe Vince Dunn and Robert Thomas give you at this moment. But we get another first round pick and bring in a talented young player into our system to help the rebuild like we sit here and beat our heads against the wall and say you know make we talk about how this makes so much sense from our our position and bob murray just really isn't doesn't seem like he's the type of guy to make those types of trades at this point he seems to be on the opposite end of the spectrum the the jim rutherford end of the spectrum where he's going to be the guy giving up the bad end of the deal at this point but you know it's just one of those things where it makes so much sense It why doesn't it happen
0: but here's the thing, right? And this is and I, I can't believe I'm gonna do this, but like it's not even fair to compare him to Jim Rutherford because Jim Rutherford traded for Kelcastro, changed for Jason Zucker. Like, yeah, he's not even making those trades. Like, I would be a little bit more fine with the ducks being hosed for five years if it was all a bunch of trades that tried. Like the last first round trick, first round pick he traded was Patrick Eves. Patrick Eves, if you ignore everything that happened after with his health and stuff like that, like, that can happen to anybody. Nobody thinks Patrick Eves is the kind of player you should be trading a first-round pick for. And I know it was conditional and all that, and he was having a hot year, but, like, that's exactly it. He was having a hot year. And then to commit three years and $3 million to him down the line, like, you're just, like, you could do so much more with this kind of stuff. And it's just insane infuriating you know i I, i'm gonna be shameless for a second and i apologize eddie but like you know i think i wrote a thing recently at the hockey writers about the ducks should be looking to get another top 15 in this draft this Mm -hmm. draft is so good that if they can trade into that top 15 for a second pick they could do so much good for themselves as far as really getting this rebuild going you know new jersey has three picks ottawa has two picks like or no, Ottawa has three picks because they have their pick, San Jose, and the Islanders pick. Like, the number of teams that are actually the Ducks peers are making very smart moves. And the Ducks are making moves that don't move the needle either direction. They're not going all in, and they're not completely tearing it down. And I understand as a small market team, maybe there's some apprehension. But, like, Getzloff's 35, man. You're not – there's no Getzloff window anymore. Like, you you either have to bring in high-end talent and double down on Fowler, Lindholm, Manson, Gibson. Or you have to start moving some of your older pieces with the understanding that you're not going to be in a position to need win-now players for three years.
1: The the, the Ducks are just in a spot right now where it... it, it... There's so many teams that they could make a deal with that would probably nope. be willing to move a top 15 pick. I don't know. I, again, we can't say if it's being expressed or not, but just the fact that there's it's out there from a reputable source that the Ducks were looking to acquire Kasperi Captain makes me sick. The fact that yeah. that's the direction that Bob Murray is exploring to go out and get a 24-year-old middle six player who really doesn't have a first-line upside – and you know, apparently LeBron thought that the that the six overall pick would be what the Penguins were asking for. Obviously, that was a quick no. There would have been more involved in that, but these aren't. These shouldn't be the types of trades that, you know, that Bob Murray is looking for. The reason Pittsburgh is looking for this type of trade is because they're a competitive team. They don't really need that that fifteenth overall pick because it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to go out and get that because they need they need to be good now. And Captain makes sense for their roster. So, yeah, it's an overpayment for Pittsburgh, but the deal makes sense because they're bringing in a player who can contribute now, and that 15th overall pick is essentially useless for them. For the Ducks, they should be looking in at teams like Carolina, who really would probably be willing to move that 13th overall pick, or a team like Nashville, who has the 11th overall pick, who are in win-now mode, who would, I think, jump at the bit to get a player at three point eight million like Ricard Raquel for the next two seasons and would be willing to potentially discuss moving that eleventh overall pick and even maybe a team like Winnipeg as well. When you look at some of the defensemen the Ducks have and, you know, maybe it's Josh Manson or Cam Fowler that gets dangled, you take some contract uh space back and you get the tenth overall pick. Like these are the deals that Bob Murray should be discussing, you know, maybe they're not available, but this is what I would like to hear that Bob Murray is exploring to do, not exploring to get, you know, move picks to bring in a player like caspery e. kaepernick
0: Right. I mean, even if you just look at the 8th pick, it's Buffalo, and I understand that Buffalo may be a little bit of a ways away from competing. The problem with that is is they have Jack Eichel right now, and he just said how pissed he is they cannot afford to lose Ryan O'Reilly. And then Jack Eichel to the I hate it here because we never win hockey games thing, that would be disastrous. How do you not go out? Kevin Adams, I have no idea if he's a smart guy or he's an idiot. He's the GM, though. It's now his responsibility to turn this team around. How do you not call him and be, hey, man, what do you want for that ace pick? I got a lot of good pieces here and they're doing more good for you than me. He's got 30, I think Buffalo has like $36 million in cap space this summer. Like, or it's off season since summer's almost over already, which I don't even want to talk about, you know, like, it's just like, you're saying there are so many teams in that top 15 or 20 that don't want to be in those spots, Florida, Nashville, Winnipeg, Buffalo, Montreal, maybe Chicago, uh, Calgary, you know, Edmonton. I just, these are teams that have expectations right now and the Ducks have a handful of win-now players. And the thing about the Ducks is their good players are good. They just don't have enough of them. And at positions, they they just don't have enough good players. Like, one player in isn't going to fix the Ducks. They need three or four guys who can score points at a big-time level. You know, you're, you need three or four guys who can get you 40, 50 points a season if you want to try to be competitive these days. And they just... They're so far away from that. And by the time Zegris is ready, or by the time whoever they take in this draft is ready, Ricardo Raquel is gonna be out of his peak. And he's not gonna be a, he's not gonna be able to compete to contribute to a team to a level that anybody wants. Put him on a team where he can win and get something back in return. This is you know, Bob Murray talks a lot about hockey trades. This is one of those things where it's like, dude, this counts as a hockey trade. It's a winning asset for a winning asset. You're just looking at different winning windows. So, I don't know. I just, like I said earlier, this is the kind of stuff that I always get upset with because I feel like I'm just talking myself into being upset when none of it happens.
1: It, it just like some of these deals, and we, we all say it as, as fans a lot, and I know there's a lot that goes into it behind the scenes, of course, but they're deals that just seem to make so much sense for both teams, and then they never happen. Like, you're telling me that if you went to Buffalo and said, hey, like, I know you guys are trying to turn around quickly. You do have other than Jack Eichel, like a lot and Jack Eichel, other than Jack Eichel and Rasmus Daline, a lot of your roster is, you know, middle twenties, early thirties. Like you're you have an aging roster and you've got to get something done before Jack Eichel before it's too late with Jack Eichel before he demands a trader get out gets out of there. You're telling me that if you're Buffalo and the Ducks come to you and say, We'll give you Ricard Raquel and Josh Manson, you give us the eighth overall pick and we'll absorb Kyle Lacpos's 6 million dollar contract. You don't think they at least start discussions there and yeah. say, you know, like obviously there might be some more moving parts to that deal, but I'm like that for me, like if I was GM of both teams, that gets the discussion started for me. Like if you're if you're Buffalo getting a very good top 6 player like Ricardo and a top 4 defenseman in Josh Manson, Trump's whatever you're going to get at 8th overall down the road, even in a great draft like this. Because yeah. of the roster you have, you know you've got you're paying Jeff Skinner who's twenty eight nine million dollars. You've got Jack Eichel you're paying ten million dollars at twenty three. You know you've got Rasmus Dahlin at uh, Rasmus Dahlin at twenty who's still on an entry level contract. You got to take advantage of that while you can. You're paying Rasmus Ristolainen five point four million dollars. Like you then now can line up with Eichel, Skinner, uh, Reinhardt and Raquel. And then you can also line up on defense with Dali Jake McCabe, Rasmus Ristolainen, and, and Josh Manson. And you're all of a sudden you've added, like I said, a top six, four to top four defenseman. Like I would think conversations could get going based off something like that. But of course, as we know, it's, it's not going to happen. There's moving parts. I think our has a modified, no trade clause. So that would ha- end up weighing into that. And, I believe Josh Manson would also have to, uh, I can't remember the status of his contract, but he might also have to agree to the move too. So there are moving parts, but it's like, come on, like these are the deals that the Ducks should be exploring. Like this draft is so good. Or even next year's draft in the top half for defensemen is so good. Like the Ducks getting a 27th overall pick for a player like Andre Cash is not acceptable when Casper Kapanen at this point is getting you the 15th overall pick. The Ducks panicked. They needed to make a move. They got rid of Andre Casha too early, and they got you know a crap pick from a good team. Like, yes, that's great. We got another first-round pick. But, man, it could have been so much better. You could have got so much more for it. You have these assets who you can trade now to desperate teams to take advantage of them. Like, that's what good teams do. They take advantage of other teams' desperate situations to put themselves in a better situations, and those are the teams that the rebuild... Is a couple years rather than five or ten years, and you look at what the Kings are doing; they're doing it right, or at least it seems like it. We'll have to see how everything pans out down the road, but they're making those moves and getting prospects. They took advantage of Vancouver; they brought in Tyler Madden. They, you know, they they got like what they got for Tyler Toffoli was insane, and and some of the trades that they made, like moving Alec Martinez to Vegas and getting what they got for him, like these are the trades the Ducks should be moving, especially when you literally have your rivals down the road doing things right. Like that should spur you on to want to make the right moves to get back to being a competitive team as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, like you said, like there's really no way to know, like it's going to sound stupid, but like there's no way to know how well these moves have worked out for the Kings until, you know, all of these guys are in the league or not. But the process is what you should be focusing on now. And you know, this is one of those things. Like, it, the thing about trading players for picks and prospects is you know that not all of them are going to turn into impact players or even full time NHLers. But the more of them you have, the more opportunities you give yourself for those to work out. You know what I mean? Like, maybe a couple of the Kings prospects don't work out, but every time you can add. More and more and more. You're just giving yourself more opportunity for your team to be better. And best case scenario, more than most of them pan out. And you either have trade chips or an insanely deep team for five years while they're all in crappy deals.
1: Like I just – you know, I – It's just – when when you're trying to win the lottery, right? If you buy more tickets, you have a better chance to win the lottery. Like that's the simplest way I can explain it. Right. If you want to be good again, if you want to be competitive, and if you want to have the best chance at getting back to being a Stanley Cup contender, why not buy as many lottery tickets as you can, get as many draft picks as you can, and some of them will hit. Yes, some of them will fall through. Some of them will be a Jacob Larson where your first-round pick, your late first-round pick, just didn't pan out. But some of them will be a Shea Theodore, right? Like That's just the way it pans out, and that's why when you get teams like New Jersey has three first-round picks in the top 20. That's what they're doing. They know that some of these guys aren't going to pan out, but the more picks we can get in the top half of, of, of especially d- deep draft, the better chance we are to turn this around as soon as possible. And, and the Ducks are kind of half-assed taking that approach by, yes, they added a late first-round pick to that, but then they're holding on to assets that could either get them you know, other prospects or other draft picks as well. And and not really fully committing to it like that. That's honestly more infuriating to me than not even going down the rebuild path and, and doing what, you know, Vancouver did for so long uh, before they committed to the rebuild where they were bringing in like, you know, Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel and, and like bringing in all these guys for weird contracts, trying to be competitive again. Like, I would rather do that. than than what the Ducks are here, like, putting one foot in the water and saying, you know, we're going to do this, but we're also going to still do this and and hold on to these guys and and try and be as good as we can.
0: Yeah, you know, this is one of those things that's especially infuriating for me because, you know, we always hear about how good the Ducks scouting staff is. That's the other thing about this that's worth pointing out. It's actually better than the lottery because you get to look at the numbers in advance. Like, we we always hear about how good this ducks scouting and development staff is if that's true why aren't you playing these other teams for suckers taking the picks and prospects that maybe they're undervaluing right now and knowing we can sit these guys down we can work with them we can develop this part of their game or we can take this pick and we can draft this guy like you know if if you have as much confidence in your scouting and developing uh, development teams, as the Ducks seem to pretend to have at the very least, and you know, to some degree, seems to be, uh, you know, supported at least in some ways around the league as far as perception. How is this not exactly what you're doing? You know, and I, I feel like we're repeating ourselves a little bit here, but I think it's just like you said. You know, it, they just have one foot in and one foot out, and this isn't the hokey pokey. Like you just can't do that for ten years and hope it works out. Like you have to pick something and go that way. You're absolutely right. I would much rather a bunch of terrible win now deals than just
1: blah. Yeah. They're just doing anything. We'll see how much leeway uh, Martin Madden has given as AGM. Obviously, you know, in the, the press release and, and the interviews he had, he's now going to have some sort of say in free agent signings and trades that that Bob Murray ends up pulling off. So hopefully, that that voice from a guy we know has gotten it done for the Ducks at the draft over the last few years. Hopefully that kind of comes into play when the Ducks are are looking to make some of these trades. You know, he's now going to be heavily involved in pro scouting as well. So he'll be looking and and trying to find some of those, you know, some of those diamonds in the rough and guys that are kind of struggling in other teams, but the Ducks could take advantage of, think they're better players. Like we'll see how much of a leeway he gets, how much of of a say he gets in those. Obviously Bob Murray's contract is, is, um, still in play until the end of the 2021-2022 season. So he'll see the Ducks through the Seattle expansion draft unless he gets fired, which I doubt is going to happen at this point. I mean, I'd, I'd be more inclined to see... I, I think Dallas Aikens would be fired before Bob Murray at this point. I don't think he should be, even if the Ducks were bad. I think Bob Murray should be the guy to go before Dallas Aikens, but I can't, I can't see ownership firing Bob Murray at this point. I don't think... You know, no matter how bad they are this season, I don't think that this season's his last chance. I think he gets this year and next year. And I think when his contract expires, that's probably when the Ducks start to look in-house at Martin Madden potentially succeeding him or looking elsewhere and seeing what some of their options are. So real quick, you made a point there about seeing it through the expansion draft. And
0: I think that that makes a lot of sense. But the one thing I would say about that is the expansion draft provides an incredibly unique opportunity to kind of work your roster a little bit more than you have other opportunities about. I really think, depending on what Bob Murray says the expectations are this year, he could be gone at the deadline. Because if you have the opportunity, or you know even before the deadline, if you have the opportunity to bring someone in, you give them the deadline, the entry draft, and the expansion draft, now they really have an opportunity to get their feet to, to get their feet under them before everything starts. um, You know, I don't know how audible it was there, but like I, I, I the guy I want is Eric Tolsky. You know, he seems to be one of the top decision makers in Carolina. He, I think we've seen how well that team has looked. And, I, you know, maybe it is Martin Madden. Maybe he's the guy, maybe he's a lot more progressive than we think or know. But I just, a guy like Eric Tolsky, I think, having had the success that he has had in Carolina coming into a similar small market in Anaheim with a bunch of young players who could potentially develop into impact NHLers. It, it for me is my pipe dream. Like that's what I want. And I just, depending on what Bob Murray tells the Samuelis should happen next season. I do think it wouldn't be an insane thing to see him fired either at or before the deadline.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's, it's the most interesting decision that the ducks is an organization are going to have to make uh, over a long period of time. Like I don't know the direction that the owners are going to go when they decide to move on from Bob Murray. You know, we know they like to promote from within. So I think right there, Martin Madden probably has a leg up on everybody else, but there are other options out there, and I would love to see the Ducks explore that. I just don't know what their thought process is, like what direction they are leaning in. Like, are they trying to go progressive and and bring in a guy like Eric Tolsky, like you said, from Carolina? Like, are they trying to be a progressive team and, and, you know, be a team at the forefront of the analytics movement and, and, you know, kind of shifting the whole direction that this team's had Really, for, for the last decade, right? Like, what which way are they leaning? I know the safe option is Martin Madden, and it seems like they would take the safe option. I would just hope that they do explore these other choices in these u- unique areas. And as long as it's not like Mike Milberry who's getting right. a uh, a call like Florida did and, and getting interviewed for for the Ducks, I mean, hopefully... There is a little bit of a mix there, you know, whether it's some old time hockey guys or some newer some newer minds in in the hockey business that they're, they're bringing in. Like honestly, that decision is so interesting for me to see, like what direction they're going to take, who they're going to interview for that position, who they end up choosing. Um, And, you know, and and really who ends up kind of being up for that position other than Martin Madden, because he's the easy candidate to kind of put up there and say he has the best shot. But there's there's so many different directions they could go in. And and this team has really followed Bob Murray's lead for as long as we can really remember that it it really like it would be so interesting to just have a new direction and a new voice behind how the decisions are made.
0: I think for me, the thing that I would hope is that they would look at how promoting within has gone. They went from Brian Burke to Bob Murray. Brian Burke picked Bob Murray as his successor. Bob Murray inherited Randy Carlisle, fired Randy Carlisle, brought in Bruce Boudreau, fired Bruce Boudreau, rehired Randy Carlisle, fired Randy Carlisle, and then promoted the AHL coach. I am not sure at this point – while I don't necessarily know because we don't know how decision making works behind the scenes, I don't know that it's necessarily fair to peg anything on Martin Matt, uh, Mark Madden. But if you're not at least taking a good solid look at some of the people outside of your organization, you're already setting yourself up for fail because we've seen how much this promote from within culture has gotten them really nowhere. You know, I think. You know, it's almost like Brian Burke stepped on the gas and jumped out of the car while it was running. And then, you know, uh, Bob Murray's just kind of been sitting in the front seat holding the steering wheel, hoping it just goes straight and doesn't run out of gas. Like, I don't know. I just think a new voice is really needed. And if that's Madden, that's fine. But you have to talk to other people outside because you need to see the way that the you know for lack of a better way to say it just the the gm like you know role it's evolved the style of role has evolved like what people are using to make these decisions has evolved you know the ducks are the only franchise i think that doesn't at least have some part of their budget dedicated to analytics i don't think analytics are the end all be all but i don't see how they're not vital when we look at all the information we have from them the idea that you're not even using them a little in your decision making process is insane
1: I I need to see how they're they're going to to do this. Like it's, it, it baffles me that, you know, Dallas Aikens was pretty much just handled the job, and it really handed the job, and it really didn't just didn't feel like they had anybody else in the running for it. I know there was rumors that like Travis Green was up for the job, and you know we had speculated that you know Ricard Gromberg could be up for the job. Like, how do you not go out and get the best person for the job? The best candidate for the job and you got to take out the bias of this guy's been with the organization because that's when you get stuck in a rut and you're doing the same thing over and over. You've got you know, a guy who's been around the organization when the organization really hasn't been in a great spot, not really bringing anything new because he's been taught the way things are running currently. And that's my fear with Barton Madden is he might be Bob Murray's choice to succeed him. How much different is he going to be than Bob Murray when he's doing everything under Bob Murray, he's learning from Bob Murray. Like there are so many other options out there that you have to consider. And when you're the Samuelis and out there and you're looking to hire a GM, you have to hope that the decision they end up making is for what they feel is the best general manager available. Even if that isn't Martin Madden, take out, all of the things that, you know, he's been here for the last decade. He's been, you know, you're promoting from within. You have to go out and get the best guy for the job. And if that's not Martin Madden, then it's not Martin Madden. Then maybe he goes out and, and, and goes somewhere else. That's that's what you end up having to do. You I, I think, you know, we, we won't know until the, the Samuelis end up having to make this decision and we get to this point. But I really, really hope that their ultimate goal is to get the best guy out there for the job. Yeah,
0: you know, I think for me, I have less of an issue with the Dallas Eakins hiring than I do with the Randy Carlisle. And I know there are people in like Ducks world who like think it's just beating a dead horse. But I think Dallas Eakins at least makes sense in so much as we're bringing in the guy who taught these guys at the below level and had a lot of success. Like he was a successful age coach with a lot of the players that the Ducks are hoping to take the leap to leading them into the next step. So that hiring makes sense. The one that doesn't make sense is and almost for the same reasons ironically is like bringing in Randy Carlyle because when these guys were 23 he was the guy that yelled at them then like they just it doesn't make sense that's the one that really gets me you know is that we brought him in because of Kessler and Getzloff and Perry because he's going to get the most out of them and it's like he did that already like we already saw how that happened you know, at least with Aikens, you can at least talk yourself into he's going to be able to get the most out of guys who haven't hit their ceilings in the league yet. These are guys who still need to develop. And if you feel that he helped them develop at the lower levels, I don't think it's elite to say they'll develop at the next level under him as well. Again, you know, it's Eric Stevens just wrote a piece about this. It's really hard to look at Jared Bednar and Travis Green, who are both having a lot of success despite just both losing in game sevens. You know, they're having a lot of success right now, and it's really hard not to think where this team would be if instead of Carlisle, it was one of those two guys.
1: Yeah, it, it is tough, but I do agree. I do agree that for the the transitional period the Ducks are in, Dallas Eagles was probably the best pick for that because he's probably the best one to develop these young players at the NHL level because he's already worked with them. He knows their habits. It's not like you're getting a guy coming in at square one and having to, to kind of learn all these guys, their habits, their personalities, you know, win the dressing room over Dallas. Aikens has worked with pretty much all of these guys at some point. So it makes sense for the ducks. Now the only question I have is, is he the guy when the ducks are competitive to get them to a Stanley Cup. I don't know that yet because we really haven't seen much of Dallas Aikens. Obviously we saw him when the train wreck with Edmonton that, but that really wasn't his fault. That team was just absolutely horrible. And we've seen a small sample size of here, of him here with a bad ducks team. You know, we'll, the question will come is, is when they're a good team, is he that guy? And, and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have to see, we'll have to see playoff runs with Dallas Aikens. And, and if he can really get it done, Uh, But I think that's the the big question that's up in the air now. I think, you know, he is the guy to lead them through this transitional period. But is he the guy to take them to a Stanley Cup final?
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think, uh, you know, I I do think that hiring made a lot of sense. You know, I think part of it may have been that he was a little cheaper than some of the other ones. But I I think, you know, I, I don't have an issue with hiring the guy from the AHL who developed your AHL guys into NHLers to help them get better. And Aikens talked a lot about having, you know, worked on himself as far as learning from that train wreck in Edmonton that, yeah, that hiring to me is the least of my worries. Like you said, we have no way to know until if he ever makes the playoffs, how that goes. But for now it seems to, at least he's a good dude who seems to be trying to hold his players, uh, you know, accountable to some degree as far as taking care of themselves and giving the effort and all that kind of stuff.
1: So well, we move on to our last topic here before fan questions. Corey Pradman, as he always does, is the kind of the go-to prospect guy for the Athletic. He put out his organizational prospect rankings, which I think a lot of Ducks fans weren't happy with where the Ducks finished, I th- mostly because a lot of other outlets had them higher. But I tend to think, like, Corey Pradman almost nailed it right in the head here. For anybody that didn't know, he had the Ducks ranked 21st in in their farm system rank and their prospects system among all teams in the NHL, which, you know, it it was, I think, players who had graduated were Jakob Larson, uh, Troy Terry, Brendan Gooley. Um, You know, he still had Sam Steele and and Max Jones as part of the Ducks prospect system. But I find it hard to disagree with where he put them because I think outside of Trevor Zegers, The Ducks don't have a bona fide guy you could say is a first line talent or could be a first line talent. Like Trevor Zegris is in that elite high end NHL potential player tier. And I don't think the rest of the Ducks prospect system is there. Like I think Sam Steele is a great player and Maxim Comtois and Max Jones, Josh Maher, Lucas Dostel, the names go on. I think they're great players and they're going to be NHL players, but Trevor Zegers is it. Like, he's the only reason the Ducks are at 21. You take Trevor Zegers out and you replace him with just an average NHL prospect, I think the Ducks are probably in the bottom five or six of prospect pools when it comes to just talent that they have coming up to the next level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, in either January or February, you know, he did his kind of mid-season prospect rankings and, Trevor Zagres was number one with a bullet. Like he was just it and, and having, you know, the number one prospect outside of the NHL and then also not cracking the top two thirds of prospect rankings I, as far as organizational, I, I think kind of tells you all you need to know and explains why we went, you know, so in on the idea of getting more picks and getting more of these high end guys Trevor Zagres is the only guy you can look at and think he has a chance to be an all-star. You know, the, the rest of the guys I just don't know. I love a lot of these guys. Isaac Lundstrom, Max Jones, Max Comtois, you know, Braden Tracy. I was a little bummed to see that he was actually pretty low on this list here. Uh, you know, but I just, it really drives home. Like, if you have the number one pick and you don't crack the top 20, that's a problem. Or the number one prospect, I should say, but like that and not cracking the top twenty is bad, and I think it just shows you how high end or elite talent deficient the rest of the prospect pool is.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily a detriment to the Ducks' scouting staff or anything like that. Like you know, Trevor Ziegler at nine was like the first top ten pick they had since Nick Ritchie and Hampus Lindholm. Like the the Ducks are just in the first stages of getting high end picks and bringing in top talent, so I don't necessarily think them being at 21 is a problem. I just think it's the perception from the fans and the, and and kind of the, I guess, the hate that it got for them being so low is because the hype that gets put on players like Sam Steele and Max Jones. Like, I remember when Sam Steele put up like 131 points in one CHL player the the year and, and people thought that he was the second coming of Sidney Crosby. You know, Ducks fans, you know, deservedly so were hyped about him, but every team... And every team's fan base overhypes their prospects, and I think that's the problem here. Like Sam Steele, I love him; he's going to be a great second, third line center in the NHL. Max Jones is going to be a great, you know, thirty to forty point uh, heavy player who you can play in all situations. I, I like Benoit Olivier Gru; I think he's going to be a very capable, shut down third line penalty kill type center. And, you know, the list goes on: Henry Thrun, uh, Lucas Dossel. like these are going to all be guys that at some point, whether it's with the Ducks or somewhere else, are going to be good to decent NHL players. But you can't expect to be high, you know, outside the bottom third when you've only got one impact NHL prospect, and that's Trevor Zegras. Like maybe that changes this year after the Ducks take, you know, whether it's Lucas Raymond or Alexander Holtz at number six, that they shoot up a few spots there because now they have two of those prospects. But you really can't expect to be in the top half of the league when you only have one blue chip prospect who could be a, an impact player at the NHL level when you think of, you know, being a top 20 or 30 player?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I please don't misunderstand me. Like, I definitely think that there are players in the pipeline who Ducks fans should to some level be excited about. They're guys that are going to come in, they can, you know, fill out roles that are going to be necessary contributing NHL players. But I think, like you said, there's just one blue chip prospect, and that's, Thing that should concern it, you, you know. Like I get it. We had you know ten years mostly of you know legitimate cup contention, and you're only going to get so high in the draft with that. But looking at the roster and looking at the prospect pool, you do, there's not a clear path to getting back up to those heights again. And I think that's that's my big concern, and why I just think you have to start trying to get as many picks as you can because. Trevor Zegras on his own isn't, you know, like Trevor Zegras and thirty-three or thirty-four-year-old uh, Silverberg. Like that's just not a cup contender.
1: Yeah, and and even with, you know, a Braden Tracy or Max Jones or Maxim Comtois down the road, when you know, even if they fulfill their potential of being second or third line players, it's great to have those. And I yeah. I love that the Ducks are finding those players. Because I think it's it, it's, a, it's a struggle for a lot of teams. You know, look at Buffalo. They got the guy. They got Jack Eichel. But then filling out the rest of those pieces has been extremely difficult for them. So the Ducks are going about this in a different way where they found all those guys that could fill roles down the road. You know, middle six roles. You know, Braden Tracy will be a middle six player. Maxime Comtal will be a middle six player. Troy Terry, Danton Heinen. You know Max Jones, they will all be good middle six players. You've got good middle six centers, and in, in like I can see Steele and Groobing a two three when the Ducks are competitive again. So you've got all these pieces. Now it's just about finding those elite talents, and they've got one. They should get another this year. You maybe need another up front, or you definitely need one on the blue line. So you're a couple pieces away. So you just have to to realize that till the Ducks get those guys, like. Fans have to realize they're not going to be ranked highly in the prospect system. It doesn't mean because they're ranked number 21, that Sam Steele's not going to be a good NHL player. It's just being realistic that the ducks really aren't at that point yet where they have impact players, but they're getting there. They're building it right in the sense of the players they brought in. There just needs to be a full commitment from the organization to a willingness to rebuild and bring in, more prospects and to go for those top high end prospects to get you to the point where you want to be at.
0: Right. And I I think, you know, I think it's worth saying, right. There's, there's three ways to get elite players, draft trade or free agency. You know, maybe the trading thing changes with whoever comes up next. But we have already seen that Bob Murray has made one, maybe two trades that you could consider a big deal. It's not something he wants to do. And as far as free agents, it's a relatively small market or it's a small market team. And despite the fact that, you know, it's on the beach, like it just doesn't seem like elite players have want to come here. So they have to start looking at making those they have to start looking at bringing those players in internally. It has to be drafting because you don't want to put yourself in a position where down the line you're trying to use draft and free agency and maybe you're overpaying – or trades and free agency and maybe you're overpaying to try to bring in the, the pieces that you need because you that's not a good way to acquire elite talent.
1: No, and the draft drafting well plays into trading for these players as well you know, draft well, you have more assets moving and the the ducks have drafted well, and they've had assets that they can move to shore up areas of weakness. We've seen them do it over the years where, you know, they had for a long time, they had what was considered one of the best defensive crops in the entire NHL. And a lot of those guys were moved to fill stop gaps here and there, you know, a, a bunch of them didn't pan out of course, but that's what happens when you draft well is you have those players that you can move to fill a spot of need down the road and you know when you look at trades right now trading for a impact high level player it rarely happens and you're usually having to give up like a, a one for one in that deal when you look at obviously you know Johansson for Seth Jones or you know Subban for Weber those types of deals where you're bringing in a superstar level player you're usually having to give up something of, of high value in return I mean obviously Ottawa giving up Mark Stone um and eric carlson you know they ended up getting some good pieces in return but they're all future pieces right like you look at maybe the maybe the only high profile player available on the market right now would be patrick line with with tsn putting him number five on their trade bait list you know what it would cost to get him at this point is it even worth it to anaheim to go out and, and explore that option you know i'm sure it probably starts at at the sixth overall pick which the ducks probably aren't in a position to really go and, and move that for a player like line a with the cap hit that line a does have at this point in time. So you don't really get those players from trade. So it has to be from the draft and, and free agency is always a tough go. Like you'd mentioned for the ducks, because it isn't a Toronto, it isn't a Montreal, it isn't a New York. It, it It's not one of those destinations where players are like, man, I can't, I can't wait to play there. I want to play at Madison Square Garden. I want to play at the bell center. You know, I want to play at United center in Chicago. like, there's a reason that you know when big free agents come available, they look for those places, or you know the top guys from Europe. Like like Chicago's been become basically a home for the top players overseas to come over and sign free agents deals. Like it started with Panarin, and then Dominic Kubalik came over, and I believe they signed another guy from Switzerland. Now now like uh, this soft season, like there are places where guys want to play, and it just Anaheim's just not a place that, that a lot of guys want to play, and it, you have to be realistic with that inside your organization and, and start to commit saying, well, we're going to build from the draft then. And that's where we're, we're going to get our elite talent from. And there has to be a commitment there from everybody in the organization. And it just doesn't seem like Bob Murray has kind of bought into that commitment yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, teams should want to change that perception, right? I think that's, That's something you should work towards as an organization. But at the same time, you also have to accept that it doesn't change overnight. And until you get to the point where despite your market size or something like that, you can bring in free agents, you need to look at the other ways or you're doing yourself a disservice.
1: No, exactly. And and obviously a lot of these questions will be, Will be solved down the road once the Ducks get to a competitive spot again. But we'll close out the show here with a few fan questions. We had some come in. Uh, we'll get some brief answers on these. So, Brett asked, How long of a chain does Dallas Aikens have? So, you know, if the Ducks were, you know, I, I think a lot of this, this is a tough question because I think a lot of it is, is performance based. So, and what the, you know, we've mentioned a couple times, it depends on what you think the expectations are for the Ducks and what ownership thinks the expectation are, are for the Ducks right now. You know, for, for me, I think he has a pretty long chain at this point because I think you know the organization is somewhat realistic knowing that the Ducks aren't in a position to compete. You know, having been in the bottom five for the last two years in a row, I don't think another bad season means Dallas Aikens is out the door. And I think he at least has a leash until the end of Bob Murray's contract and, and we'll see how things go from there.
0: Yeah, I, I think for me, it's he is tied to Bob Murray. I, I don't think bob murray can fire him uh i don't think there's i don't think the samuelis would let that happen i do think if bob murray gets fired then obviously now you start to look at okay does the next guy want this guy or whatever but as long as bob murray is around i have a hard time thinking eakins isn't behind the bench
1: yeah it's tough i I mean when you bring in a new general manager that's all going to be assessed right when you look at new gms who come in across the league you know, did you know, how how often does the coaching staff end up staying in place? And maybe he gets a, a one season under you know a new GM just to kind of see how things go. And um, so I, I think that you know his chain is is as long as Bob Murray's with the club, like you'd mentioned. And, and I think at the very at the most he gets one season under a new GM just to see for that GM to kind of assess his situation, his coaching staff that he has there, the team that he has in place, and see where we go from there. So. So Dallas probably has a, a, about at least three years left, which I think is a, a long enough time for him to either make his mark in a positive or negative way on the Ducks organization, and and that will kind of determine which way they end up going. You know, and 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 who's available, of course, to replace him.
0: Right? Yeah. I you know you said three years, and that just made me sad because now all of a sudden I'm thinking about Bob Murray being <laughs> on for that much longer. And it's so it. tough. Yeah, because like I've always liked Bob Murray. I've always I I think. Um, I think the thing with Bob Murray is, is I do think there's a lot to be said for him keeping the team consistent and for being a constant presence in a small market team that, you know, is trying to make sure it keeps fans in the building and things like that. But I do think it is fair to look at the back end of that run and say, it doesn't feel like we got the most out of, you know, two of the six best players in the franchise's history so far yeah i just it, it's just frustrating you know and so i think you know in 10 years or whatever when he's gone hopefully we'll look back semi-fondly on him but i do think in the now it's a very frustrating thing to think about him being in charge for much longer
1: yeah i i remember putting the notes together for today's show and i was like oh his contract ends at the end of the 2020 season that's great and then i double checked and now he's He's on for another two years, which kind of hit me a bit hard. Hit me a bit close to home there. But <laughs> next uh, next question we have here is from Dave. He said, do you think the extended rest from the layoff will be a benefit or a detriment to the Ducks? Uh, that kind of goes hand-in-hand with the fact that Bob Murray was also looking, or Bob Murray and the GMs of the other six teams who didn't make the play-in series were looking to have an extended training camp as well. Uh, do you think... That this extra rest this extra time to kind of analyze your team if there's an extended training camp does that help the ducks or does that hurt the ducks heading into the the 2020 2021 season
0: i gotta be honest i don't think it makes much of a difference you know i i think best case scenario you know a couple of your guys i know good branson's on ir right now he gets healthy you know maybe it's good for Getzlop to have a little bit of the extra rest but like you know, I don't think there's going to be a huge, unless there are injuries that we don't know about, I don't think that there are enough players at an age and an ability level that'll make it, that the layoff will have any serious impact. You know, I think maybe we could get a great uh, Getzloff season, but beyond that, I I just don't see how there's going to be much benefit either direction.
1: Yeah, I I mean, right now, there, there really is no benefit. I mean, the players aren't, out on the ice, Bob Murray's not really getting a look at his team, like I think there's maybe a slight benefit from an extended training camp, if the seven teams were to start a training camp before the rest of the teams, and I think there's a slight benefit there, that the Ducks can get an early look at some of these guys that are going to be fighting for roster spots, like Jones and Terry Comtois, Milano, Heinen, etc., that they can get a better look at those guys, a longer look at them and, and really start to determine who fits where, who's going to make the, the lineup come you know, the start of the season and whatnot. So there's, there's some benefit there, but I don't think it's a significant benefit. And especially right now, there's absolutely zero benefit from being, you know, off for this amount of time because the players aren't there. You know, they're not getting a look at them. They're all at home. There's really, you know, the Ducks aren't really benefiting anything at this point from the players being at home and not really being around them. So unless it's, unless there is an extended training camp, this layoff really didn't help the Ducks uh, in any way. Um, Dave's second question here was, do you guys see a trade market for Manson? And if so, to what team and for who, uh, we'll start with that first one. Do you think there's a, a trade market for Manson right now? I know there was teams that were rumored to go for him at the deadline.
0: Oh yeah. I definitely think there's a trade market for Manson. I think, you know, I've said this before. I think, uh, Josh Manson is everything that Bob Murray believes to be good and true and pure about hockey And I don't think he's alone in that. I think – you know, I don't – Josh Manson isn't a great skater. But every now and then, every few games, you'll see him kind of join a rush. And as much as he looks like a drunken moose, he does well enough on it. And you're like, oh, okay. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's a right-shot defenseman, which is always going to have value. And he's tough, man. He's old school. Like, it makes sense that his dad is an enforcer. Like, he just – he just plays that type of game. He has a good contract. I absolutely, I have a hard time thinking, short of a catastrophic injury, that there won't always be a trade market for Manson.
1: There's just so many teams who are still looking for that. Like it's not, it's not like you need a team full of guys like that, like you used to, but. You know, you look at a team again, like we mentioned them before, like Toronto, who their you know fans, the media is desperately calling out for that team to add some edge, some grit to their lineup, while also being a capable NHL player. At the same time, you can't help but think like Manson just kind of fits what they're looking for there. I'm not sure that you know the Leafs have exactly what the Ducks would be looking for, but they do possess that 15th overall pick now that they got from the Pittsburgh Penguins, which, which could be a nice trade piece for the Ducks to go out and get. So in terms of to what team and for who, I think if the Ducks were to, to trade for Josh Manson, they would be look, needing to get like a, a top 15 or top 20 pick in this year, or next year's draft in in return form, or, or at least a, a decent prospect who projects to be a top six forward or top four defenseman down the road. I, I don't, think the Ducks can really afford to get, you know, what they got for Andre Kasha in a, you know, B level prospect and Axel Anderson in a late first round pick. If you're trading Josh Manson, you need to get more than that, especially the fact that he's locked down for, for the next few years, which is, you know, is gonna be important, especially for a team that is, is trying to find a spot for him to fit in their roster and be competitive. So there's definitely a trade market for him. Whether it happens or not, we'll have to see, but it should be one that Bob Murray is actively exploring.
0: So I've been because this is what I do in my free time because I'm uh, I'm just boring. <laughs> but I've just been searching Cap Friendly, and I was watching the Flyers game the other day, and I was thinking that I, it doesn't make sense per se from the for the Ducks, but it would just kind of be nice. Is there any way that we could trade Josh Manson for Gostisbehere because we do not have a Goss Despair on the team and he has played exactly one game in this series. I do not know why Elaine Vigneault doesn't like him, but they have Niskanen and Braun, and I have a hard time thinking either of those guys are significantly better than Manson, if better than him at all. Manson is exactly the kind of guy Philly would love. I really think, especially if Gostasbier has fallen out of favor, I think the Ducks could get him out of there.
1: I think they could. I I don't think, like, uh, you know, bear is 27. He makes about 4.5 josh manson's 2080 makes 4.1 like the deal makes sense and you know what it seems like it it feels like a bob murray deal a hockey deal one for one um the only thing i think if i were the ducks i would try to get a little bit more because goss is not being used by philadelphia that should be a a, you know negotiation tool at the very least for bob murray to say like you know josh manson's despite us not being that great, has been a big part of our team. He plays big minutes. He plays with our best, you know, on our top pairing. Like, he is a key guy for us. Meanwhile, Shane Gossespierre clearly isn't a key guy for you because he's not playing in the playoffs. He's not playing in the big moments for you. We'll see if he plays in in Game 7 today, but... You know, I, I think it makes sense if the Ducks were able to get, you know, a draft pick or a prospect to go along with that to kind of sweeten the deal a bit. I, I think, you know, Shane Gossespierre is the type of defenseman that the Ducks really don't have in terms of a, a pure offensive defenseman. Uh, and he is only 27. So it's not like, you know, he's already super close to 30. He still can be a reliable player for the next four or five years for the Ducks. And he's not that far from removed from having a 65-point season, right? Like... They're, yeah. they're, they're, that potential is still there for him to do that
0: yeah no i agree i i just you know it it, it kind of goes against some of what i was saying earlier but it just it's a very intriguing option for me because like you said he the, the, the ducks just don't have a guy like that and i just wonder how much having someone like that could do for the power play and you know the difference between winning an extra an extra five or six games can just be power play goals it can just that kind of stuff can make a big difference over the course of 82 games. So, you know, it's something that I would at least think that Anaheim should look into, especially because Josh Manson's a very Philly kind
1: of player. If only Shane Goss was right-handed, it would just make too much sense to bring a man, But, you know, another guy that you could look at too, along the same lines, and, and there's obviously been questions about his kind of fit in, in a lot of locker rooms in the NHL, but Dougie Hamilton's also... Uh, among those players who are rumored to be traded, same age as Shane Gostisbehere, and and is a consistent you know forty fifty point defenseman in this league, and and is near the top. Of goals, uh, when you look at the, end of, the end of the year by a defenseman, so he is a, a player that they could look at. Now, Carolina wouldn't be looking for a one for one swap with with Hamilton and Manson. to would be more them looking for for some forward help out front. So, obviously, we mentioned Ricard Raquel before. So, if if the Ducks were looking to go that that hockey deal route to kind of bring in a right shot defenseman or an offensive defenseman, I think Dougie Hamilton could be a name uh, that they could look at as well, similar to that type of deal as well as as the Shane beer one.
0: Yeah, I you know I I think Dougie Hamilton would be awesome. I think you know that kind of like if you think about a Lindholm Hamilton pairing, like I just think that's a good pairing. And I think it's you know it, it's worth remembering. Dougie Hamilton was in the Norris conversation uh, mm-hmm. before he broke. I think he broke his leg. You know, I mean, I, I I have a like like okay. Let's say this: if they call and they say Hamilton and next year's top ten protected first for Raquel and Manson, how quickly do you say yes before calling the office? You know what I mean? Like the the league, like I, I would absolutely give up both of those players for Dougie Hamilton because no part of Dougie Hamilton's game, despite the fact that he's six foot five is predicated on his physicality. Mm -hmm. He skates, he passes, he shoots. That is all stuff that you can talk your, that you can see aging well with him. I don't, Manson's gonna be the same and I don't know that the Tucks want Ricard Raquel's next contract.
1: No, yeah, that that that's an interesting contract for me on and, on and, and what that's gonna turn out to be. A lot of it depends on, on obviously his production this year and, and in his last year of his deal, what that's gonna be. I I think right now, you know, the last four years have essentially washed each other out. You know, you had the 33 and 35 goal season and then the 18 and 15 goal seasons. Those are are pretty much canceling each other out. It really comes down to what Ricard Raquel does uh, in in his next two seasons to determine what that value is going to be on his contract. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, if you're looking at bringing in potentially a top 10 pick and a player like Dougie Hamilton, you know, that basically it's a one for one swap manson for hamilton you're getting a top 10 pick for for ricard raquel so if you were the ducks at that point like you would have to at least engage in those discussions and say hey like hamilton's a player we don't have can be a valuable player you know he just seems to be getting better even though he's 27 and then you bring in a pick to kind of facilitate that rebuild as well and and even if you know Things don't pan out with Dougie Hamilton trading him at 28 or 29 if he's still playing at, at that level is something you can also do as well and you'll likely get more for him than what you got for you know what you would have got uh, in in a trade and just moving Josh Manson.
0: Carolina's got 13th pick this year, so you know they have that Toronto pick. So yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just think. Again, we're going to talk ourselves into being sad when none of <laughs> this
1: happens. Yeah, I know. It's always fun to speculate trades, but no, none of us ever seem to be on the same wavelength as Bob Murray. Uh, McCann asked a question along the same lines as Bob Murray. He said, what in your eyes has been Bob Murray's best move and uh, and the move he would bring to the table if ownership forced his hand? So we'll kind of keep this recent. like In recent memory, what is Bob Murray's best move for you? it's a tough one because there haven't been many
0: (laughs) I I I feel like his best trade was the Kessler trade and more recent than that I I don't know
1: yeah it's tough like I would have to say the Kessler trade too just going off the top of my head because of how well he fit here and obviously you know if things hadn't gone wrong with his health he'd still be an impact player for the Ducks Uh, But man, like there just isn't many because of like recently there aren't many because of the position the Ducks have been like it's easier to answer the second half of this question where he says like what's his worst move like that's you know, there's a a lot of answers for that one. I think Shea Theodore probably tops the list, at least in my opinion for those. But there's a lot of other candidates you could put in there for for worst moves for Bob Murray.
0: Yeah, I, I think the one that everybody would kind of point to is the Shea Theodore trade. And I think the one for me that just to bring up another one that really hurts to see is the Sprong trade. That trade, getting dumping Marcus Pedersen and getting back a guy who played maybe 20 games for the team. Like it, oh, Marcus Pedersen is such a good player. He's not exceptional, but he is exactly what you want on your second pair. He's just a good defenseman. He's not making a ton of money. He's locked up for a good term. Like he's less than five million for a couple of years. Like I think four or five years at least on Pittsburgh. And it's just the team would be in a much better position if he was on the team still. Like I was thinking about it. You, if they would have traded Fowler and Manson, they could still have Lindholm, Theodore, Pedersen, and Montour as their top four. Are Arguably you telling me
1: better one than what they have now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and if nothing else you know, I'm, I, let me say this. I like Cam Fowler. He seems like a genuinely good dude. I think that there is a significant portion of Ducks fans who have talked themselves into him being much better than he is, you know? And the fact that I, th- I, I know it's, everybody says it's vatman and Manson, but I really do think because they had Fowler and because they had Lindholm, Bob Murray said, I have my top two left D for the next 10 years. And he traded Theodore to Dumpstoner because of that. If they would have just kept Theodore and lost Fowler, this team is in a much better spot. If for no other reason, Theodore is already getting Norris talk. Cam Fowler has never gotten Norris talk.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of things went into that decision. I think, I think, Partially is what you're saying there, where like Lindholm and Fowler were the one, two at the time on on left defense, and the Ducks did have you know still younger guys coming up in Jacob Larson and, and Marcus Pedersen that they thought would be good, maybe not as good as Shea Theodore, but Shea Theodore was kind of in the same spot. Brandon Montour was at that point like a young player who was starting to prove themselves, and they were pretty doing pretty well for the team. And I think a lot of it had to also come down to they didn't want to lose Manson or Vatn. They wanted those, that you know, they felt like they had their top four there in Lynn and fowler and Manson and Votnin, and they wanted to keep that together. It's ironic that after doing so and move- getting rid of Theodore to do that, you end up moving Votnin at the beginning of that next season <laughs> to get Adam yeah. Henrique anyway. Um, so, you know, and, and now it just hurts, you know, watching the way Shay Theodore runs that blue line, runs that team almost for Vegas uh, you know, the big goal in, in last night's game to get Vegas to the the Western Conference final. Like, he is just, I, I would argue, I, I don't think it's really an argument. Like, you put him on the Ducks right now, he's the best defenseman on the team. Like, he is a close to being a top 10, top 15 defenseman in this entire league. He's just that good. And he just does everything well. And now the offense that we were waiting for is starting to come from him. He's starting to put up the points. Like he does everything else. Well, analytically, he's like the darling of the NHL. And then now the points are coming. Like now he's just starting to be a, like you said, a guy who will be in a Norris conversation every year.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, uh I remember going to one of his first games up uh, in Anaheim. And the thing that stuck out to me and it, you know, it's such a silly thing, but like, his shots consistently got on net, and I don't think that is a skill that people think of with defensemen, but like the number of times that we see defensemen take shots from the blue line or the point and hit bodies on the way there and then just become pointless is so high, and his shots consistently made it all the way to the goalie. And if nothing else, that gives you, you know, an extra 20 feet to get a tip or a play or create a rebound or something. And I think that is specifically
1: something that this Anaheim team lacks very badly. Look at his goal for Vegas last night. Yeah, He wires a wrist shot from the point through a defender's legs. It goes past about four players and into the top corner. And Demko... He
0: shoots it across his body, kind of,
1: you know. Demko didn't even see it. It just pinged off the post and went in. It's, it's you know, things like that where he's just an exceptionally smart player, so he knows when to release the shot at the best moment to get it on net, and and he's just starting to kind of build that confidence and get better and better. Like, it's it's going to hurt for a long time. Like, this is going to be a trade you're going to look back in 10 years and, and look at Shea Theodore's career and be like, I can't believe the Ducks gave this guy up in, in the expansion draft for nothing, and pretty much because they couldn't convince... Kevin BX to, to wave his no move clause. Right. Like it's just, it's, it's not even, it's not even that you made a trade, you know, for another top prospect in a position you needed and they just didn't pan out. It's like, you lost this guy for absolutely nothing. Yep. (laughs) That's the hard point.
0: That's
1: just, that's it. All right. Uh, Last fan question we got here. We talked about the draft a little bit earlier uh, Clar- Clar- Clarissa, asks, who are some draft possibilities at pick number 27? Um, I you know, just off the top of their, your head, just, you know, doing some draft research. Has there been anybody around that, you know, late first round, any names that you're like, we should go for that guy?
0: So there are two names for me. One of them is a guy who should be higher in the draft, but he's got some concussion concerns I guess and that's Hendricks lapierre who seems to be by all you know by everything I've heard he's a top 15 player in the draft but there are teams who are scared about his injury history and if a guy like that falls I think you just have to take the chance that's that's the benefit of having a second first round pick I don't think there's really there's the odds of missing on that six pick are so low to me as far as getting a good player that I think that 27 pick is somewhere where you can really take a chance. And on that note, my second pick is Jamie Poirier, or Jeremy Poirier because he's just fun. He's <laughs> such
1: an enigma, that guy. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I watched highlight footage of him and it, you're just watching it and you're like, Does he know this isn't a pickup game? Like, you know, like, I don't know. Like, he just looks like that guy at Beer League who's just better at handling the puck than everybody else. And so he just skates in circles by himself and then nothing ever comes from it. And then sometimes something absolutely does. Like, his just, his handle and his skating is so high end that it's like, I honestly don't care that he doesn't actually know how to play defense. Like, I just don't care. (laughs)
1: It's just, like it's like you showed up and you, you you didn't have enough guys to play defense and you just moved one of the forwards to defense. That's basically yeah, what Jeremy Poirier is. It, he, he is like there are so many plays from this past season that you're like, wow, this guy's a defenseman. Like that he like end end rush like dangled a couple guys backhand top shelf like, but then there's equally amount you know enough plays where he just does not have any commitment. Like it's not like he's just playing bad defensively and he's trying like there are plays where like he's just not trying like he's just not interested in playing defense so he's yeah he's just that guy where like You could take a risk that, you know, similar to what Ryan Merkley and the Sharks did when they got him, like he had attitude problems, so it's a bit of a different situation. But they took a risk there saying, like, this guy is an exceptionally skilled offensive defenseman, but he doesn't really have any commitment to the defensive end of the game and he has attitude problems. And Jeremy Poirier is very similar to Ryan Merkley in that way where a team, he'll fall, and he'll probably fall to, like, late first, early second, but the reason he'll still go that high is just because of how exceptionally skilled offensively he is. Like, he's better than some of the forwards that will go in that spot when it comes to offensive talent and, and just playmaking ability.
0: Yeah, I, I think if I have to teach somebody something, I'm perfectly fine just kind of having to teach them. Because, again, these are, what what is he, like 17 years old? Like, yeah. I'm not necessarily yeah. going to freak out if a 17-year-old with that kind of skill on a bad team is just like, eh defense is overrated like that's not great you know you want them to be a little bit more mature and thoughtful than that but at the same time it's like dude i can teach you how to you know just get back i can't you can't teach people how to do some of that other stuff that he does just that that creative instinct and that puck handling are just it's awesome it's just so much fun if nothing else he's going to sell tickets in san diego for 10 years like let's Let's just make it happen. I'm
1: just... You can drill defensive commitment into somebody. Like, at some point, if he doesn't commit on his own, he'll be faced with a situation where it's like, dude, you're either either making the NHL or you're not, and the only way you're making the NHL is if you have commitment to the defensive side of the game, and then it'll come down to his decision, and you know the offense is still there and if he has that defensive commitment and even if he's not a great defensive defenseman like even if he's just average and then you add in that offensive ability he immediately becomes an attractive piece for any team like if he was just somewhat capable defensively like if he was an average defenseman he would be a lock for the first round but it's just that laziness in his own zone that hurts him and that, and that's why he's ranked where he is
0: yeah, I heard a quote when I was re-listening to the draft PDO cast that was, it was for me like it was one of those ones where I was just like, oh, that's something. But the I I think it was uh, Cam Robinson, but he was like, there's gonna be a chance whenever he's on the ice, you just don't know which team it's gonna be for. And I'm like, let me come on, that's <laughs> that's awesome. Let's just make it. And you know the thing is, the other thing is, and this is worth pointing out, I think, with the 27 pick is the Ducks have the 36 pick too. One of those picks, whichever one they feel more comfortable with, you have to take a swing. You absolutely have to. You are not going to have, like, the difference between 27 and 36 is not so substantial as far as talent that it's not worth taking a huge swing and trying to really hit a home run. So if you use 27 on someone safe and Poirier is there at 36, go for it. Or the other way to do it, which in my opinion is smart, use the two picks you know about make those good choices, and then take that 27 pick as money in the bank. You know, just bet with other people's money.
1: Yeah, I mean, they did that. They did that last year, I think, to some extent. Like, Braden Tracy was a bit of a swing for the fences. Uh, A lot of people had him projected, you know, mid to late second round uh, because last year was his first year. Like, his draft year was his first year, his rookie year in the WHL. So it was a bit of a unique situation. The Ducks took a swing. So it at least shows me that... They might be willing to do so and open to making a swing because they should, and, and that's that's how you end up taking a rebuild from you know three or four years to maybe two or three. If you take a swing on one of those guys who maybe is a project or fell for whatever reason, like you even mentioned Hendrix Lapierre, like because of the, the concussion history he has, like five concussions in the last two years, he's going to fall. But maybe you swing on that guy if he's there at twenty-seven. Because if he figures things out and the injury problems don't con- continue, like he's a top 10, top 15 talent. Like those are the guys you have to swing for when you have that many first round picks. And obviously you look at New Jersey and Ottawa, who have just a plethora of picks in the first two rounds that they will be a, a team that's favorite to make one of those swings. But the ducks I think have to be right in that mix.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing that at least gives me a little bit of hope was last year, you know, uh, the Ducks were, I think a pick away from trading up to take Peyton Krebs yeah. and, and Vegas took him. And so they didn't, but that willingness to be like that pick is worth more than these two later. That at least shows me a little bit of creative thinking. And I think that I think we might hear those kinds of rumors again. If someone is in that 15 to 20 range uh, that the ducks really like, I think they could look at packaging, 27 and 36 and trying to move up.
1: Yeah, and I think they should. I, I mean for me to answer this question, I think a lot of what they could do at 27, 36 could hinge on what happens at six. Um, not so much the player specifically, but between a forward and defenseman. So if, like we had mentioned before, it'd be like Holtz, Perfetti. Um, Raymond, Rossi who could go in terms of forwards and then Drysdale is the defenseman up there I think if you take a forward, which they probably should at that top half of the draft, and let's say you get a guy like Lucas Raymond, I think that's where you start looking, you know, at 27 and 36 to maybe go get a defenseman, or to maybe go get that shooter who, you know, isn't the complete player like Ale- uh, the more complete player like Alexander Holtz is, but a guy who's just a pure shooter, and for me my first pick at uh, at either 27 or 36, depending on, on what what the, the trend of the draft is, uh, would be Tyson Forrester. I think you know he's up there and, and having one of the top shots in this draft. The only downside for him is his skating's a little bit suspect and you know the rest of his game isn't as rounded as some of those guys that are going in the top half of the draft, but this kid can shoot the puck and he seems like the perfect guy to pair eventually with a guy like Trevor Zegres where you've got a pure shooter with a pure passer and you're not kind of putting all your eggs in one basket by drafting Holtz and playing him with Trevor egress where you're going out and instead and bringing that complete player, like you'd mentioned, Lucas Raymond, playing them on separate lines and then bring in a guy who just shoots the puck really well. And that's his bread and butter and playing him with Trevor egress. Then he's not trying to do much. He's literally on the ice for one reason. And one reason only is to score goals and receive passes from a guy who we hope is, is going to be one of the best, pass- best passers in the league. And, and then my second one would, I I would like a defenseman, a right shot defenseman specifically, to be taken with one of those first three picks. Whether you know it's Helga Granz or or one of the other right shot defensemen who'll be available there, I think the Ducks should start kind of priori- prioritizing that a bit because they don't have any in their prospect pool right now other than uh, really Hunter Drew.
0: That's right, Hunter Drew, <laughs> Drew Hunter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, he's Baby Manson, man. I'm just such a like. I remember watching him at the prospect game or whatever. And you just watch him, and you're like, yeah, man, you're like an old-school dude. Like, you're just kind of mean. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. But, uh, you know, I think this was a note a little earlier, and just because of the kind of the way the conversation unfolded, we kind of missed it. But it was kind of one of those positional need or best player available conversations. And I think for me, I almost look at best skill available. And, you know, this is something we've consistently talked about today is the Ducks need shooters. I don't care if they play defense. I don't care if they play goalie. If they can hit, if they can score, I think the Ducks need to just start taking some swings on some finishers because they've got enough guys who can play two-way support roles or Trevor Zegers who can just make passes for days. They need to find finishing. Everything else to me is secondary. I don't care what position they play. I don't care how well they skate backwards with a 10 pen backpack on. I Take shooters. That is what they need. The best player available who can shoot is who they should take, I think.
1: Yeah. And when you have two picks in that top thirty six like that, where, you know, there are some some key high level shooters who'll be available. I mean, obviously the prize of, of this draft, like we mentioned a few times already, of shooters is Alexander Holtz. But outside of that, like there are like I'd already mentioned Tyson Forrester and Brandon Brisson and, and there's a few others, like there are some very good shooters that are going to be available or should be available around that 27 to 36 range where the ducks can start looking like Bob Murray made a comment. I think in the exit interviews where he said like nobody on this team can one-time a puck and I need shooters. I need guys who can one-time the puck. That's where you start going get these guys. I, I, I always try to subscribe to at least early on, like at number six, take who you think is the best player available. I don't care if you, you know, there are some exceptions like obviously if you had two number 1 centers maybe you go for the winger but if that player is significantly better than your other choice take who you think is the best guy available and and then that's why you stock up these other picks in in late in the first round or in the second round to go and then that's when you start filling positional needs that's why a team like Ottawa has like four second round picks and in a couple first they can you know they have 3 and 5 so they can really take whoever they think is best available there and then they can start filling up positional needs with the rest of the first round picks and second round picks they have. And that's why, you know, rebuilds like that end up being a lot more successful than maybe the way the Ducks are taking because you've given yourself a better chance to hit on some of these guys and you've started filling some positional needs. So if you do hit on all these guys, you've now got guys in the positions that you are hoping to fill as well.
0: Yeah. I, uh, you know, Ottawa has seven picks in the first two rounds. Like, it's just <laughs> that's. And the fact that they're 3-5 and because they have the uh, San Jose pick is just, first of all, wonderful. And second of all, it's just, yeah, man, you're not going to miss on those first two. You can take whoever is not taken between Stutzla and Byfield and then probably going to have one of at least the three guys we said, plus all the guys we didn't get to. There's a lot of people who have Marco Rossi higher than that. Uh, Cole Perfetti I know is a guy people like. You know, I mean, they can really do some interesting things. Or the other thing is having these kinds of picks. We touched on it earlier. You can trade up. There are always going to be teams who would rather move back, get a couple more picks because they think they they trust their scouting, they trust their value. You can move up and really make some aggressive plays for some guys and really try to put yourself in a position to succeed.
1: Exactly. I mean, we'll have to see. I'm I'm pumped for the draft. I've had to wait way longer than I ever have had to wait. For the draft, now that it's potentially going to be in October, normally we'd be <laughs> we'd be already discussing the, the start of the season or close to it and projecting where, where the Ducks are going to finish. So. I can't wait for the draft. I want to see who the ducks end up getting at six, who they end up taking at 27 and 36. So we can stop speculating and, and start kind of projecting <laughs> where these guys are going to go. I hope everybody listening. I'm so, again, I'm sorry for the delay. I know it's been a couple months since we put out a show, but we gave you an extra long show today. I think we're probably pushing on almost two hours or so now. So it is a, uh, it is an extra long show for you guys to enjoy everything we've missed. We'll be back hopefully on a more regular basis with, with some ducks talk. Once once things start heating up, hopefully Bob Murray listens to the show and starts getting worked, getting working on some of these trades here, but I have to give a a big thank here to, to Steven. You you saved the day here, came on the show and it ended up being, being great, man. So I appreciate you coming on and, and let everybody know where, where they can find you, where they can find all your work uh, from the hockey Raiders as well.
0: Yeah. Um, so like, uh, like eddie said i'm I'm at the hockey writers steven Doner. uh i'm on twitter at the hockey boomer which if you heard me today explains a lot uh you know just giving lots of bad opinions as often as i can (laughs)
1: Uh, so yeah no thank you eddie for having me on man i had a blast yeah no worries man and hey i mean anybody who wants to check out ducks content we now finally have a full team at the hockey writers of ducks Uh, Ducks content producers for a while. It was me and Anthony, but now we have Steven and Derek who've joined the team. So we do have a full Ducks team. We're pumping out a ton of articles. There's great articles coming out from Steven, great articles coming out from Derek, as well as Anthony and myself. So make sure... You guys go and check it out there. Uh, but pretty much, I mean, I think we've been we're almost pumping out an article every every day, or at least every other day now, and and we'll be doing these more more often. Where we'll have Stephen and Anthony and and Derek on the show more often now that uh, the show is is uh, part of the Hockey Writers, and of course uh, once. Once the schedules align as well, packed, and, and Jason will also be uh, back on the show. And, and once the season gets started, we'll be back to, to post-game shows, which will be interesting to see how those go as well. So, again, uh, Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, we will see you guys, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet online, your online sportsbook expert.